For me, it began in 1992 with an ending. I was five years old and happened upon a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. From that moment forward, the Man of Steel has been my favorite character. And now on this podcast, I'm exploring my fandom and examining the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton across media for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the Superman origin story across time and media is returning guest, Rich Roney. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, sir. I'm so glad that you could join me for this. This is part of a month-long exploration of the various tellings of Superman's origin. Uh, a week ago, I put out an episode featuring Mark Wade, in which I spoke to him about uh, Superman Birthright, which, of course, is a post-crisis story. That's my favorite telling of Superman's origin. And now, over these next two episodes, we're going to be taking a look at pre- and post-crisis. And I've wanted to do this for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, and I know you and I have talked about this uh, off mic, and maybe during some of our episodes as well. You know, one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast series generally is that I love having the opportunity to take a long view of the character and to see how Superman has evolved, um, you know, over over time and media. It's rare to have an instance like this where you have a character who's endured for over 80 years um, and has, you know, appeared in, in virtually every medium available uh, and, and has been worked on by so many creators. And, you know, I think you see so much evolution, so much layering, you know, over over all of these years and these decades. So that's what I love about the podcast generally, and I think that the origin story in particular is a great sort of representation or encapsulation of that evolution, because you really get to see how this origin story was built, you know, from that one-page story in Action 1 um, to everything that we have today. So in this episode, we'll be looking at the pre-crisis tellings, and uh, again, I know you and I have been talking about this for a while. Uh, there's so much for us to unpack, but I, I always or often I like to start with the personal side of this because I think that's, um, you know, I think a way in for, for a lot of our listeners or viewers. Um, would you mind sharing what was the first telling of the Superman origin story that you experienced? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Uh, and for the benefit of your listeners, uh, I did send you a picture of uh, a book I bought oh, maybe a month or two before I turned nine. And, um, it was published in 1965, but it, it contained one of the origin stories. It, it was a, a perfect reprint of an origin story from Superman 146, about uh, 13 or 14 pages. But I was about a, a month or two shy of my ninth birthday, and that, that book was published January of 1965. I can remember buying it. I can remember taking it home. And, and, and for the benefit of your listeners, it was a, a book called More Secret Origins, 80-page uh, book from D.C. <clears throat> it had the origin of the Justice League, origin of Aquaman, a uh, number of other characters, the Atom, Robin. Um, but it had, it had this story from Superman 146, which I think is, uh, they call it the complete life story of Superman. And I can remember being so careful because my school was about a mile and a half from my house. The train station was on the way home and I saw this book and I had to have it. And that was the time when I was watching the adventures of Superman with, with George Reeves. So we're going to get into it a little bit later, but 
that that 14 page story was just so powerful, but also it was the blueprint. Like we're going to talk about it. It, it gave you everything you needed to know about how he got his powers, where he was from, how he created his costume, how he discovered crypto, how he, you know, built the tunnels in his house. Very fond memories. That's terrific. I was doing it again, wasn't I? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> yeah, Rich and I did uh, an episode on the Adventures of Superman episode, Panic in the Sky. It was part of Digging Deeper, our Patreon-exclusive companion show. And uh, and yeah, Rich said, can I just I give think, a brief high-level yeah. summary? And then he went on for it. He gave a beat-by-beat, beat, seven-minute breakdown. It was epic. It was one of the most epic things yeah. that I've ever recorded for any of these shows. In, in retrospect, it wasn't that we did the podcast. It's kind of like Rich did the podcast and you just recorded. I was just I was I just along for the ride. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't realize. I was in the moment. It's it's great. Uh, so, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I would imagine there are people listening or watching who, I mean, I'm sure, whether it's that particular story or, or, or a different story, a different character, you know, we all have those moments, um, you know, with certain books in particular. It's in, interesting. I, I was trying to think, Obviously, as everyone knows, it's at the start of every single one of these episodes. Death of Superman was my first Superman comic. But in thinking about what my first experience with the origin story was, it was probably Superman the movie, which we'll touch on a little bit later in this episode. But it was probably that. I mean, I feel like, you know, ultimately I, I would go back and I would I would read John Byrne's Man of Steel. But I feel like that was a few years into my into my Superman fandom. So that wasn't right at the top. And then, you know, a lot of the, you know, the more recent post-crisis tellings, you know, came, you know, over the past decade or two. And honestly, as far as the pre-crisis comic book stories, uh, I think I had only ever read Action One. Most of what I read for this episode was new. Uh, and I have a few big picture takeaways that I want to share. I want to ask about yours as well. I also just want to lay this out for our, our audience and, you know, give a sense of what we're going to be covering and maybe what we're not going to be covering. So I would say in terms of what we'll be discussing in this episode, in terms of the comic book tellings, the radio show, the Fleischer cartoon, the 1942 novel, uh, the Kirk Allen serials, the George Reeves series, <laughs> Superman the movie, I would say that this episode is thorough but not necessarily exhaustive. So I want to put this out there now. We're not saying that we are covering literally every single post uh, pre-crisis telling of the origin I feel like we're probably hitting on the vast, vast majority. Um, there were a couple of things that uh, either one or both of us didn't have access to. I know there was an, there was an issue of Action Comics, for example. Uh, I don't have the number offhand, but uh, that wasn't available in trade or digitally and uh, was cost prohibitive to try to track down. So again, this is not to say that we're covering every single thing. Um, our research too, again, I, I stand by our research. It's not infallible though. So, you know, we consulted with uh, the website that I know you're very fond of, Superman Through the Ages, and there was a little Wikipedia in there as well. Uh, some of the Superman uh, anniversary hardcovers, which have a lot of historical context, very helpful. Uh, so we did our research, but again, if there's something that we don't hit on, um, it's possible that, you know, it, it kind of slipped through the cracks in our research. It's possible we just didn't have access to it. The one other thing, and I think this is maybe more relevant in the post-crisis episode in two weeks, but I'll say it here as well. My sort of my guiding light in selecting these these tellings is that um, I, I stuck with incontinuity tellings. And now you might say, well, anything pre-crisis is no longer incontinuity, but uh, I went with the original intent. So if the original intent when the story was published was for it to be incontinuity, I included it. 
again, if we had access to it and I knew about it. Uh, so, you know, like when we get to the post-crisis episode, we won't necessarily be covering uh, All-Star Superman, for example, because that was a story that from from the outset was intended to be out of continuity. So uh, just in case anyone is wondering about, uh, you know, some of the choices, that's why. Uh, but that being said, uh, this I think this was a we, we I think we we have a lot to discuss and I we the reading the homework assignment was not uh, was not insignificant. Would you agree? I would agree very much. <laughs> yes, yes. I think for the benefit of your listeners, I think it was early in the new year when we were kind of putting our heads together, and I gave you a short list, and then you did more research, and I think you returned an email to me that had like fourteen or fifteen, right? Yeah. And I really had to scratch my head, like, you know, the secret years or uh, that Paul Kupperberg thing, World of Krypton. Some of these things I really had to look for. But but um, one thing I will say, and, and I, 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 want, I want you to drive this and then me be reactive, because once I start talking, that's not good for the audience. You're kind of suffocated out. But um, this was thrilling for me because I read a lot of things that I never would have read otherwise. And I... I relished what I learned in them. So that being said, you start you start driving and I'll be the passenger. All right. So, you know, what I would ultimately like to do is is kind of go, you know, story by story. Uh, and I think some maybe we'll, you know, we'll spend more time on than others. But I do have a few big picture takeaways that I would like to share. And, and again, I would love to know what your uh, your responses are and, and your overall reactions to this to this reading and viewing and listening project as well. So... A few things. I've said this in other episodes, and I'll, I'll say it again here, and you know this because we've talked about it over the years. Um, I, I've always found pre-crisis stories, Superman or otherwise, kind of a tough nut to crack in terms of reading enjoyment. You know, I don't have the experience of reading Silver Age Superman when I was a kid growing up, right? So that nostalgia factor is not there for me. And, you know, a lot of these pre-crisis stories, the, the sensibilities were different. They were written for a much younger audience. They were very heavy on the exposition. Uh, they were, you know, largely done in one stories. Uh, they, again, the sensibilities were different. I'm not putting them down. But in the past, you know, any attempts that I've made to try to read stuff pre-crisis, and that's not, not everything, but a lot of pre-crisis stuff has been a little hard for me to really enjoy. For the most part, that still holds true after this, but I will say that I really approach this from a more academic and historical perspective, and it was it was a very interesting and enjoyable experience. Like, I really did have a great time going through all of these, but my objective was different than it was in the past. I wasn't sitting there like, I want the story to blow me away. It was more, I really want to understand how this origin story was constructed over time. So that's my first, that's my first takeaway. The second is, it was fascinating to see how the origin story built. Um, and there are so many very little, little and major variations along the way. And I know we'll talk about that, but I will say this, and I don't know if you, you would agree with this. I found that there was more consistency than I was expecting going in. Yes, there are things that change here and there, no doubt. But overall, I feel like you could kind of encapsulate a version of the pre-crisis Superman that holds true for the most part across most of these stories. Like there was more consistency than I was expecting. And maybe that's that speaks more to my low expectation for the continuity of the time. But I found that there was like the, the so there were a number of through lines that really held um, as I made my way through these stories. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and for the benefit of the listeners, 
Uh, Anthony, do you give a list of about 14 or so? And I assertively tried to track every one of them down. I couldn't get that one issue of uh, action that was just hasn't been reprinted. But I use that exact word. The beautiful thing about all these stories, and for the benefit of the listeners, I would say 10 of them are available off Superman Through the Ages. You can just go to that website and you can read them, um, you know, just read them through the website. But there was, I used that exact word. The beautiful thing here is there's, this is the essence. I mean, and there's tremendous consistency. And the beautiful thing is you can see how with each story, when the, the page count gets longer, they let it, they open it up a little bit more, but, but quite bluntly from that 1938 story all the way through to that uh, Roy Thomas, Wayne Boring, Jerry Ordway story in 1985, there is tremendous consistency. There's a few, you know, uh, retcons and alterations, but this is the essence. And then the last thing I'll say before I turn it back is one thing that frustrated me when I was a child, there were a number of stories where they would like Jimmy Olsen would go back to Krypton and be Superman's babysitter, or Lois would go back and flirt with Jor-El. Uh, the, the 12 or 14 that we're going to talk about, consistency is the perfect word. And, and you see it incrementally evolve. I'm glad you mentioned that um, because this kind of goes back to just to kind of button up what I was saying before about what went into choosing these selections. So, you know, we know and maybe, you know, our audience is familiar that, uh, you know, in the Silver Age in particular, there were a lot of stories that dealt with Krypton. And like you said, you know, supporting characters, visiting Krypton and, and all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, the, those were not part of our selections for this story. So we, it's not like, oh, anytime they go to Krypton, we consider that an origin story. Uh, so we did, we did draw the line there, but I'm, I'm glad uh, you, you mentioned that. So yeah, there is, there is a, a good amount of consistency and kind of remarkable when you're talking about, you know, almost 50 years worth of stories, you know, by a host of creators. There, there is a lot of consistency. I mean, the panel of, of you know, baby Clark, you know, uh, lifting up the furniture at the orphanage. I mean, how many times did we see that yeah. uh, yes. over and over? Yes. That being said, kind of a little bit of a, the flip of that, what I really found interesting was that you see how the story changes to reflect the times. And obviously, once you get to the Silver Age in particular and the introduction of Superboy, I mean, that adds a whole other dimension, an unwelcome one for this reader, but it adds a whole other dimension. Oh, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because of the 14 stories, the only one that kind of stands out like a sore thumb is that 1945 <laughs> story. Um, now, I know why they did it from a business standpoint, right? I mean, it was low-lying fruit, right? Superman selling like 4 million issues uh, a month. Uh, so, hey, let's throw one more out there. It's money in the bank. But but it was jarring. It was jarring. And it must have been difficult for Siegel to write that one. And I'm sorry, I took you off off your chronology. No, sorry that's that. fine. You know, the this whole Superboy thing, and, you know, you and I, we did two, um, well, three, including the Patreon episode, but we did a, a number of episodes on uh, the George Reeves Adventures of Superman television series. And um, in the second episode, we talked about an aborted, a failed attempt to continue the franchise with a Superboy TV series. And in that episode, I went on a rant about why I don't like Superboy. And I don't think you were prepared for it because when I was done, I think you were just like, okay. <laughs> so, but... Uh, you know, I, I do kind of feel strongly about this and I, uh, you know, I could, I, I could say more once we get to it, but I just like you, I agree with you. Like I do understand why from a, 
from a publishing perspective or even a creative perspective, once you've been telling stories with Superman for X number of years, it's like, well, what else can we do? It's like, oh. This is low-lying fruit. Well said. And so I do get it, but man, do I not like the idea of Clark operating as Superboy. Now, in modern times, I love the Connor Kent Superboy. I like the Jonathan Kent Superboy. I think there's a place for Superboy. I also love the idea of Clark helping people in a non-costumed capacity in Smallville before he makes his debut as Superman. That's all great, too. Um, I'd be okay with the idea of him as Superboy in its own universe where he stays Superboy. But the idea that he's Superboy first and then Superman, uh, and especially reading these the, a few of these stories here, it, to me, it's just it feels silly. And also, I just feel like it, it totally undermines his journey, one of the most, re- and you know, we just did a whole episode on birthright. It's so relatable because he's a young man in his mid twenties trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. What is what is his role in the world going to be? It's like for anyone who says, "Oh, Superman's not relatable," read birthright. And so it just it it kills me to sort of take out, you know, one of the aspects of the character that has resonated with me the most and that I think makes him the most relatable. It's like if it's a no brainer for him not only to become Superman but to become Superboy. And then the, the transition to Superman is is barely anything at all. Uh, I just feel like it it undercuts his journey, and, uh, and yeah, I'm not a fan. It, uh, but we're simpatico. Uh, one thing I'll share, I'll share, and I do want to get back to the chronology, but just indulge me for a minute. Go for it. So, uh, again, for the benefit of listeners, I'm 65. I grew up in the very, very heart of the Silver Age. I was reading comics 1963, 64, 65, up through 1970, the essence of the Silver Age. But one one set of stories I loved was the Adventures, uh, uh, Adventure Comics, The Legion of Superheroes. And it was Superboy going into the 30th century. And I found it fascinating. You know, Monel, Ultra Boy, Karate Kid, Feral Ed. But I always kind of knew, you know, even when Superboy gets hit with kryptonite, he's probably going to make it out of this thing, right? It, it, he was never at risk because, you know, two inches away on my desk, I had action comics and Superman comics. So I kind of figured when the Fatal Five came after Superboy, Superboy's going to, he's going to get out of this one, you know? Well, that's true too. I mean, I, you know, I guess you could argue even reading Superman, it's like, well, you figure he'll be okay, but there's at least a chance, right? <laughs> you know, and obviously we've had... Yes, famously, you know, in the 90s, the death of Superman, but there was also, right, it was a Silver Age story as well, the, the death of Superman. Maybe that was an imaginary yes. story, though. But, no. you know, but nevertheless, it's like there was still at least a possibility that there, you know, like there could be some stakes. There could be some law. Yeah. Um, and you lose that with Superboy. Um, so, you know, so we'll talk about Superboy more when we get to that point uh, in these origin stories. And then my last, uh, I think my last uh, big picture takeaway was... Um, you know, sort of really, and I, I, I have notes here myself, and I know you do as well, and, and I, I broke it down um, chronologically, and what was really interesting was that, you know, you start with Action Comics number one in 1938, and then you have Superman number one in 1939. Um, you also have the newspaper strips. You have the radio show in 1940. You have the Fleischer cartoon in 1941. You have the George Lothar novel in 1942. Uh, in the late 40s, you're going to have the Kirk Allen movie serials. And then in the early 50s, the George Reeves television series. And what really struck me was, you know, I obviously 
prior to this was aware, you know, that Superman had permeated, you know, all, all forms of media. But I guess it, I appreciated it in a deeper way through this process. How early uh, all of that happened. The fact that within mm. this first few years, again, it's not just comics, it's newspaper, it's radio, it's TV. And, you know, why does that matter? I guess because in my mind, um, especially in, in thinking about this podcast, it's like I I always want there to be variety in what we're talking about episode to episode. It keeps it interesting for me and hopefully for the audience as well. And that won't change. But, you know, I think in the back of my mind, I'm always saying to myself, well, like, make sure you, you, know, you got to spend enough time. You got to spend a lot of time on the comics, right? Like, don't, you know, don't have too many episodes in a row about non-comics Superman stories. Um, and, and yes, ultimately, um, you know, the comics are where he started and, and, you know, has been published continuously for, for 80 plus years. Whereas we've had massive gaps in terms of Superman on TV or Superman in the movies, certainly on the radio. Um, but I guess it, it just made me appreciate even more how big a role, uh, these other forms of media played in shaping the character and especially recognizing again, how early this all came into play. Um, it just uh, it just point, hit me in a different way. No, to your point, it was almost like in within the first four or four and a half years, they hit those six mediums, you know, action, action one, Superman number one, the radio show, Fleischer, uh, that novel. They all just coexisted. You know, it, it, it was like a fire taking off. The spark just went and... It's fascinating, and to your point, um, and we do want to get into it, the influence of the radio show on the comics, we'll get to that a little bit later on, um, but but as, as you said, it went from one page in 1938, two pages in 1939. I, prior to preparing for this discussion, I had never read that 1939 newspaper strip, and wow, both in terms of content and artwork, it really speaks to the, uh, it demonstrates the enthusiasm that uh, Siegel and Schuster had for science fiction, because most of that story is uh, all except for the last two or three panels is set on Krypton. And they really, really, they create the environment of Krypton. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because to just kind of tie this all together, you know, that's the thing there, there are significant elements, you know, to the origin story and to Superman generally that come from these other, you know, the, these other adaptations. So it's really interesting. Uh, so I guess let's, let's dive in, you know, action comics, number one, one page, we get a one page origin story. Now you might know a little bit more of, of the background, but I, I came across this, uh, in, in some of my research, I believe, right. Siegel and Schuster, they were shopping, you know, Superman around initially as a newspaper strip. And when, and when the company that would be DC ultimately picked it up, uh, basically they compiled the initial newspaper strips into action one, but they had this first page that they added. Right. And that was the origin. Yes. Yes. And yeah. Uh, as you say, one thing that's constant in like, in like the first 13 or 14 is there's always a panel of uh, <laughs> Clark, Clark in diapers or as an infant holding a crib or a, a bureau over his head. Right. That was constant. But as you said, that was one page in 1938, two pages in 1939. Um, in, in the one pager, it was just a doomed, uh, it was an unnamed doomed planet. He was found by a passing motorist 
And there was no mention of his parents. I mean, all you got was like a panel of him out racing a locomotive, jumping over an eighth of a mile over a skyscraper. And then he's wearing the costume. Um, yeah, it's fat. Like, it's so fascinating to me, uh, you know, because we, you know, the origin story now has been told and retold so many times. And I think even, you know, a non-comics fan, even the non-initiated, they know the broad strokes of it. Um but to see it here, I mean, yeah, there are so many elements that that are missing. I mean, like you said, it's a doomed planet. It's a scientist. We don't even get, you know, Jor-El. Uh, they don't even mention a, a mother. Uh, we don't get the name Kal-El. Like you said, he's found by a motorist and brought to an orphanage. And based on this one page, uh, again, by the time the story is retold in Superman 1, this will change. But based on this one page, we're led to believe he grows up in the orphanage, somehow gets the name Clark Kent, um, and ultimately decides to use his powers. I would say, I guess if you if you really counted it up, almost half the page was just about explaining his powers. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, possibly even two-thirds. Yeah. You know, short of that one, him holding up the uh, the crib. <laughs> uh, um, and I, I, if I may, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit. I truly think that newspaper strip that we got to read, this is the first time I ever read it. And it shows, to me, it demonstrates the love and the passion those guys had for science fiction circa 1920, right? This very sci-fi world, uh, an advanced uh, civilization. And all the people on Krypton were super powered at the time. But it showed, I think, the love they had. And I think, I don't know who did it, but somebody really cut that down to make it one page in 1938. That's why I think uh, certain events were just truncated. Um, and, and then I will share with you, I did read the original Action Comics, number one. I have the Millennium Edition. And then I read the uh, Roy Thomas thing in 1985. And they both track very, very, very similar. Um, but, yeah, the, I think they just wanted to move off that page and let's get into the, uh, the adventure story, you know, where he's, where he's the social crusader and, you know, he's, he takes that wife beater and just like throws him 20 feet into the wall. Yeah, that's the thing. And even on that one page origin, you know, they 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 describe him as a champion of the oppressed. And, you know, I have I have a trilogy of episodes coming up over the spring into summer um, where I'll be spending an episode in the Golden Age and then the Silver Age, which you'll be joining me for, and then the Bronze Age. And so I'm very curious to uh, read more of these these stories from these different eras, in particular the Golden Age, because I think it is a really interesting aspect to the character that for the, with some exception, but for the most part has really faded over time, this idea really of him as the champion of the oppressed. And, and, you know, like you said, you know, he's, he's, he's beating up the, you know, the, 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 wife, the, beater, the yeah. wife beater, the abuser. Um, the first time we see him on page, he's, you know, rushing to the governor's mansion to uh, stop yeah, someone, yeah. you know, from being, uh, you know, executed for a crime Execute. they didn't commit. And he's like, no nonsense, you know, he, but he just yeah. busts in there. It's a, again, a very different Superman than we would get in, in later incarnations. It's so, I'm so glad you said that because when I reread that, that Action Comics number one Wednesday night, and my God, you know, he's knocking down doors, you know, uh, the governor's butler isn't moving fast enough, so he knocks down another door and gets the governor out of bed. Um, but like, yeah, the, 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 the abuser, the wife beater, uh, he goes in there, he kicks the snot out of that guy, you know, just like slugs him, the guy careens against a wall. And hey, there's no, it's it's not the uh, 
compassionate, soft. I got to hold myself. I got to restrain myself. None of that. I mean, that's something I didn't know. Now, again, I grew up reading the Mort Weisinger, Kurt Swan, uh, uh, John Hamilton. Uh, I read the stuff in the 60s. So I saw this more of this father figure who was very, very, very intellectual, very thoughtful, very guarded, you know, a lot of thought balloons that showed what was going on in his mind and how he had to protect his identity. Um, So when I read these 1939 and 1940 stories, holy cow. I mean, this, this guy was a bruiser. I mean, he was no nonsense. For sure. And, you know, I think going back to uh, our adventures of Superman deep dive, I mean, I really, you know, and again, not to rehash all of that, but, you know, the first season of that show was made, you know, was it 1951, right? And then it aired in 1952. But, you know, it's like when a decade changes, it's not like, oh, if there's an, like a flip is, you know, is switched, uh, you know, or a switch is flipped, <laughs> rather, uh, you know, right like that. I mean, you know, certain things carry over. So I think very much, uh, you know, that or that first season of Adventures of Superman in particular, where he is, a, I mean, this guy's punching criminals left and right every episode, um, I mean, there's not so much of that like social crusader element per se, but he's mixing it up. I mean, he's a he's you know uh, he engages in fisticuffs regularly, and I think that's born yeah. out of out of you know the earliest comics. I agree. I agree. If I could say this fast, I haven't thought about this, so I'm crystallizing this as we speak. I think. Uh, you know, maybe the first four years, three years, he was really the social crusader. You know really championing of the oppressed, he'll take on any bully in the world. Then in World War II, he became a little bit more patriotic. Mm-hmm. And then I really think, as you said uh, at, the, at the top of this discussion, at the beginning, after World War II, I think people just wanted to calm down, right? Uh, that whole generation was overseas. They were fighting. They wanted more peace. And they, they, I think the stories then really shifted to a tone and an optic for children. But I think, you know, between 1938 and 1950, uh, you had the champion of the oppressed, the social crusader, and he's going to kick the snot out of him. And he's going to fight all, all bullies. Then you had the patriotic. And then, then you kind of got more like, uh, you know, Lois cooks some uh, muffins. One falls and it hurts his toe, you know. <laughs> No, it's true. And, you know, obviously, um, it, you know, and again, you mentioned the war. And then, of course, also, you know, Frederick Wortham's seduction of the innocent and the, the Senate inquiries into, you know, the, this idea that comics were corrupting the youth. So I think, and this is not a groundbreaking analysis, this has been, you know, well, well covered. But yeah, I mean, I think you also have that going on too, right? So you really do see the shift from him as the social crusader to more of a, a representative of the status quo. But again, it's one thing to read about that, and it's something else to see it in the comics. You know, I was going to save this for later, but it's it's appropriate here. I want to mention this because when I when I read this, I jotted it down immediately because it just so jumped out at me. When you, I think when you, it's subtle, but I think when you want to see how things shifted, I think this encapsulates it really well. So uh, we have you know one of the major tellings, and then you know I want to jump back and keep going chronologically, but I just want to mention this because uh, I think it's it's super interesting. So. Um, I think our our last major pre-crisis telling was Superman 53 on the 10th anniversary of Superman. Um, And then early in the Silver Age, um, in 1961's Superman 146, uh, we have another telling. And 
on the first page of each of those issues, um, you have sort of a summary of Superman's powers. And at the bottom of each page, you have uh, basically the same idea represented, but with the one big difference, and I think this sums it all up. So in Superman 53, you have Superman saying, I'll rebuild this area so people won't have to live in slums, right? He's a social crusader. He's taking it upon himself to rebuild uh, this, this downtrodden area. Cut to the Silver Age, <laughs> Superman 146, and he says, at the mayor's request, I'll, yes. I'll remove uh, these I'll ugly tenements. These tenements. And that, yeah. I think, for anyone who is like, what are these guys talking about? I mean, if you, like, if you want an example, I think that's, that really sums this up, right? He's not taking it upon himself anymore. He's doing the bidding of the government. And, and to your point, between Superman 53... And it, 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 may we, could we kind of, do you want to cover anything else with uh, either the newspaper strip or the Superboy story before we jump to? I do. Uh, okay, then, I do. then I'm going to keep quiet. <laughs> <All right. laughs> no, I, well, so um, the last thing I, I just want to say with action, well, a couple of things with action one. Um, and, and I guess this applies to a number of the early origin stories, um, but especially in action one, you know, he debuts you know, he arrives on the scene with his costume with the S on his chest. And then, uh, you know, George Taylor at the Daily Star assigns him to assigns him to cover the Superman. Right. And Clark seems incredulous. Right. Like Superman. But it's like, what did you think people were gonna, like? What like what <laughs> was the intent? You know, what was the intent of the S? You know, in later stories, we'll have Jonathan, you know, actually say to him, like, you know, you're you're a Superman or, you know, Superboy. But uh it's just funny to me. It's like he, you know, and and again, I think this, this this just goes to show, you know, the Siegel and Schuster. It's like they came up with this character of Superman, right? He's going to wear an S on his chest. But in the context of the story, especially that earliest story, it's just kind of funny. It's like, well, why, why were, you know, why initially wear that on his chest? Did he not intend to be called that? It was just interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. And even, even in action one, uh, I think after he had the fight with the wife beater, the guy, the wife beater took a knife and it broke against Superman's invulnerable skin and the guy fainted. And then Superman changes into his Clark Kent clothes. And when the cops come, he goes, Oh, it looks like our friend Superman took care of this guy. Right. Right. But, but like, you're right. The, the being incredulous and stunned, uh, uh, what did you think? Right. You know, and they even did it. I think there was a panel at one final panel where it had, Clark Kent with a hat on and his glasses and a suit and it had Superman, right? And they go one and the same at the bottom. So, right. yeah, there, there was some sort of identity crisis. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, cause, so the thing with the wife beater, because that takes place, so, you know, he goes to the governor's mansion at the beginning of Action 1 and then after that, right, is this is uh, yes. his, his editor giving him the assignment and mentioning the name Superman, right? And then the wife beater comes, if I'm not, right? right? right. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. The other thing too, and yeah, no, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that the bizarre thing is I learned, I enjoyed it more in the 1985 retelling by Roy Thomas, but it's so abrupt in in the very first story because there's that, that blonde woman, right? And like at the top panel on page two, he's got her slung over his shoulder. He's flying through the air. He drops her near a tree. And then he, you know, he goes in, I guess, to talk to the governor or, you know, try to. But I didn't. Who the hell is this woman? It was just so truncated and so abrupt. 
Yeah, and you know, again, a, a year later, we're going to get that fleshed out in Superman One. But yeah, I mean, in, in Action One, I mean, man, they really just drop you into it. Um, you know, the other thing too is, uh, you know, we have this sequence where Lois takes or Clark takes Lois out, uh, you know, uh, on on a date, and uh, you know, we have Butch who tries to cut in, and then Butch and his and his guys take Lois right, and then that leads, of course, to you know the what's represented on the cover that famous image of him holding up the car did you read action comics 1000 no i have not i'm sorry you never read it were you not able I to track it. oh you have it so there's because there's i mean again there's a it's a it's a bunch of stories in there um you know honoring the 80 year history uh, but there's a really interesting story by written by jeff johns and richard donner uh that's sort of the aftermath of superman uh crushing the car where we see Butch take the car to the shop to get fixed and Superman shows up like there's actually follow up, you know, Superman shows up and, and basically says, like, I looked into you and I know, you know, you basically like you had a rough, you know, a rough upbringing, you know, you lost your parents, you know, something, something along those lines. And he's like, the gist of it is like, you know, you can either continue to take that out on the world or you can do something, you know, with yourself to help. And it, he like, he, it turns Butch around. Um, it was it was a really interesting story. Again, honoring the the first Superman story, uh, but kind of adding this human element to it, where uh, Superman follows up with the guy who took Lois and the, the guy whose car he smashed. Really interesting. I think you'd like it. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and if I may talk about the difference in sensibilities and sensitivities in almost eighty years, right? Yes. <laughs> in current time, he follows up. The person we were talking about for the last uh, few minutes would have followed up and beaten the snot out of him. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, I don't know. If you read the two stories back to back, I don't know that it quite gels. <laughs> but, you know, but it was it was an interesting it was an interesting idea. And, and I guess it does, does go to show the, uh, you know, the evolution of the character. So, you know, again, action one, we get this one page. Krypton is not mentioned. Jor-El's not mentioned. The Kents are not mentioned. You know, it's but. Even in that first issue, and this holds, of course, holds through, holds true throughout the rest of the origin stories. Um, and I think this is why I know it's not pre-crisis and it's not in continuity, but you know that opening page of All Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, um, I think that really gets at the essence of the origin story that's present in all of these. Right, a doomed planet, a desperate scientist, a last hope. Um, okay, the kindly couple is not there in, in Action Comics number one, but they're there, you know, for for basically everything after that. The, or even if you want to dial that back and say human intervention, right? Like there's someone who finds him, uh, and then there's this decision to become Superman to use his powers for good. I think that's why that All Star Superman, uh, that one page origin story, is so effective um, because I think it really just taps into what's at the core of of all of this. You know, uh, yes. an attempt to save this child um, and he reaches his destination. There's some human intervention and, uh, and, and he decides to become this do gooder. Um, so uh, just something that, that I always kind of come back to is that one page, you know, that one page origin story. So uh, Superman number one, 1939. Uh, did you have a chance to reread that for, cause that's on Superman through the ages, right? Uh, yes. I read those two pages. Um, I, I, then we, we learn, you know, how should I say it? The differences, right? Uh, there's no passing motorist or, you know, there's no passing motorist. There's the Kents. Krypton is named. But then effectively, uh, those are the only 
two new additions. Um, I do think there's a panel where uh, Pa Kent, uh, I think at that time they were John and Mary Kent, um, but he's t- they're talk- the parents are talking to a boy, Clark, and talking about, you know, you, you've got great powers, you've got great responsibility. I remember that being at the bottom of uh, the first page. Um, but he was, to me, he was a boy of like 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, I, that story really did. I mean, one thing I found interesting real fast is Siegel wrote the first four origins, right? So you could see where he just added something each time. Maybe he had more space. Um, sadly, Anthony, I leapt over that two-page 19, uh, that two-pager, and I went right, I was so, so, fascinated and just immersed in the newspaper telling. Um, so I didn't spend a lot of time on Superman number one. I know it's two pages. I know the the passing motorist is kicked to the curb, though he comes back a few times later. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I, so um, that's perfectly fine. I actually, this one did kind of grab me a little bit. Uh, there, there were a number of things that, uh, that, that really did spark my, my interest here. So as you said, right, Krypton is finally named and we get the Kents. Mary is named. John is not. Um, Correct. It's right. And then I think it's ultimately in uh, going back to Superman 53 on the 10 year anniversary uh, when we see the graves of John and Mary, we see his name. But at this point, we, you know, we get Mary. But in any event, the Kents are, are now part of the story here. And, you know, though it's it's one panel, I did appreciate this idea that it's like, okay, it's not just that he's brought to an orphanage. It's that there are people who are instilling values in him uh, that are going to ultimately make him become Superman. So I, I did, um, you know, I did appreciate that. It was also, I was fascinated by this and I wanted to get your take on it. So I felt like, and the rest of Superman number one supports this as well, where you really see how, because uh, they use pages from Action 1. Like, basically, Superman 1 and, and, and Action 1 really can kind of go together. And and Superman 1 essentially fleshes out um, a lot of what you see in Superman in, in Action Comics number 1. So, you know, um, again, going back to the the person he rescues from, from Death Row, we see in Superman number 1 how he found out that that person was innocent, right? So you kind of go through that. You see him get his job at the Daily Planet. So it, it really, um, you know, again, it really uh, teases out a lot of those those story beats. But... Um, the idea of the orphanage, right? So in action one, a passing motorist finds Kal-El, although he's not named that, right? Finds the baby, brings him to the orphanage. Here, um, we have the, the Kents find him, bring him to the orphanage and then come back. And they're like, oh, we couldn't stop thinking about him. We want to adopt him. And at that point, the orphanage is like, great, take him. Because again, we have that panel of (laughs) of the baby, (laughs) you know, tearing the place apart. And I feel like I don't have any, you know, I don't. I don't know what the intent was, but reading it, I have my guess would be, right? They didn't want to necessarily directly contradict the origin that had been established in Action Comics number one. So you could maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but you could read Action Comics number one where it says the passing motorist that could be the Kents who find him and bring him to the orphanage and then come back, possibly, right? Like it's not a direct contradiction. But the end result is that the orphanage cements now as part of the origin story. <laughs> and what, you know, because I made a list of things to kind of track to see how they changed as you go through these various tellings. And it's like the orphanage is always part of it. And the Kents, 
the, the Kent's motivation changes because there are later stories where they bring the baby to the orphanage and they're like, we want to adopt him. And they're like, no, you can't adopt him. Like we have a whole process. And then the baby tears the place apart and they call them back and they're like, you can adopt him. Then there's yet another version where they, they're very savvy, the Kent's. And they're like, we'll, uh, you know, we'll drop him off here. Like, we'll just leave him at the doorstep of the orphanage. And then we'll come back and we'll adopt him. So, like, the Kent's motivation changes as we go through the years. Um, but the orphanage remains part of it. I mean, I don't know. what Did you have any any reaction to the, the orphanage piece of, of all of this? It's like, was it... Part of me feels like they could have just cut that out with, <laughs> with Superman number one, but they kept it. Uh, to your point, what's fascinating is... Amongst, say, the 12 or 14 stories I read, that orphanage is the only constant, right? That and this little, you know, like two-year-old in diapers holding a, a bureau over his head. <laughs> um, it's, and and all, all the workers there are going, look, we got to get rid of this kid. He's going to destroy the place. Um, the other, you know, and, and I do have to say this because there's a couple of, a couple of later ones where they revert back, like that Superboy story. It's a, it's a passing motorist. Yeah. Um, um, and, but the only constant, whenever the Kents are there, and like you say, they were always, always portrayed as an elderly couple, right? It was only in post-crisis where they were kind of made younger. But um, the love and the values they instilled in him were so, so core. They're the essence of his character. Um, so I did really like, as I looked at these 12 or 14 stories, how, how it evolved. And there was more and more play by the Kents in his upbringing and instilling moral values and stuff like that. Uh, um, yeah, no, for sure. And you see, too, that it's, you know, their, their passing that is the, you know, the final, you know, element that catapults him into this decision to become Superman. So it really adds... I mean, this really adds key elements and again, shows him getting his job at the, at the Daily Star. It's so funny to me. And this came up uh, in an episode that I did with, with uh, V. Ken Marion when we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, about uh, Clark and journalism. And it's, you see this play out here where he shows up and he's like, I know I don't have any experience, but I think I'd be really good at this. <laughs> it's like George Taylor, to his credit, is like, no, get out of here. And then, uh, you know, Clark ultimately, you know, uh, gets that story, but... Uh, yeah, this idea that he's able to land this job, uh, you know, is, is, is really funny. Um, but again, and this really, you know, again, shows how he got his job and why he why he pursued this, right? This idea that he had to be in the middle of the action. He, need to, he needed to be in a place where he could find out what was going on uh, immediately. So that and comes out here. I, I think to your point, there was a panel in Superman number one where he's near a newsstand and some newsboy is hawking papers. And he goes, ah, I better get a job at a, a, in a newspaper. That way I'll have access to information so I can help people. Yeah. Um, so, so that's Superman one, uh, let's take a 30 second commercial break and then we will get into the newspaper strips and, uh, and the radio show. Good Lord, man, I got stuff to say about the radio show. So, uh, 30 second commercial break. We'll be right back. Movie lovers should check out this family of film festivals, the Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park, and the Point Lookout Film Festival on Long Island. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, C.J. Cullen. 
you can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast, as well as the Cullen On Film podcast via a shared universe network. And we're back. Okay, so we talked about, uh, we're 47 minutes into this. We talked about Action 1 and Superman 1. <laughs> Still got a lot of ground to cover. But uh, let's talk about the newspaper strips because I found these. Yeah, if, I, if, if I could interrupt, yeah. we're 47 minutes in. And we've only covered three pages of story. I think from here, though, it'll just, you know, we're, we're just getting go. Uh, but so these newspaper strips, you know, I know there were, I think there are some collected editions of the newspaper strips uh, if you want a hard copy. Um, but they're also available on this website that I know you're you're a massive, I feel like you live on this. You love this website, Superman Through the Ages. And that's where I read them as well. Uh, but but these 1939 newspaper strips, I know I, I want to let you, I want to let you run with these. What uh, what struck you about the newspaper strips? Um. Probably three things, three things. Um, again, like I said, uh, I, real quickly, it, it just demonstrates the love and the passion, the enthusiasm that Siegel and Schuster had for sci-fi. Sci-fi maybe is circa 1920. The second thing is I thought the quality of the story, the artwork and the energy, um, how they really created this culture of, of Krypton, you know, with a highly advanced civilization, the people were super powered on Krypton. They had superpowers on Krypton. Um, but just the quality of the artwork, the quality and the kinetic energy of the story, uh, quite frankly, uh, I don't know, what was it, 12 pages or something like that? 11 pages were all set on Krypton. It's only the last page when Kal-El is rocketed off. Um, so the quality of the artwork and the fact that they really built this, this environment you could, you could tap into for the future. Uh, the sci-fi uh, thing. Now, one thing I will say, in my research, apparently that's the second time Siegel used the name Jor-El in a different story, like three or three years earlier or something like that. There was some um, some police or space police force, and there was Captain Jor-El, spelled exactly the same way. Oh, very interesting. That's very interesting. I did not know that. Um, otherwise, you know, I agree with everything you said. And uh, well, as far as the spelling, right, it's Jor L with an L, not an E L, right? And it's Correct. it's Correct. Laura with an O instead of Lara with with an A. So you know, a, a couple of variations Correct. there. Um, yeah, these were really interesting. I mean, I, I agree with you. It was fascinating to see so much time on Krypton. And this is you know, again, Krypton was named in Superman number one, but here we get the names of of Kal El's parents and the, and the name Kal El itself as well. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, I, I had this thought, and I know, you know, you and I have joked about this a lot over the years, but, and I, I know comics fans will, will appreciate this. It's like, if you're a comic book fan, you know, reading comics, watching adaptations, you know, TV, movies, things like that, there are a few things you're going to see a lot, right? You're going to see the Waynes get shot in that alley over and over and over. Sadly for me, you're also going to see, because I love, I like the idea of the Kents being alive, but you're going to see Pa Kent grab his arm and go down a lot. Most recently, I know you haven't had a chance to see it yet, but Superman and Lois on the CW, which is great, by the way. In the opening minutes of that show, we flash back to, <laughs> to the Kents in Smallville on Main Street, you know, celebrating like the Harvest Festival or whatever. And whoop, there it goes, grabs his arm, he goes down. But I think we also have to add to that, and as part of my reread, you know, as my, part of my prep for this, I, I came to appreciate this. I think we have to include in that group of, uh, you know, iconic 
you know, origin beats for various characters. It's poor Jor-El trying to convince the council that this planet is doomed. You know, you talk about consistency from here on out. It's like every telling this poor guy over and over <laughs> is just trying to convince these dummies that their planet and, is doomed. And, and uh, in a few of the earlier ones, and you're right, that's a consistent through line, linear, right? He's always going in front of the council. I don't know if it's the council of wisdom, the council of five. <laughs> it, it varies. That's an accordion. But there was one story I read where uh, uh, Jorel. Krypton's foremost scientist addresses the council and then they just ridicule him like crazy. And I figure, well, how did you become the foremost scientist? Uh, uh, I noticed they, they quit using that adjective, you know, <laughs> foremost scientist. Um, I, I do want to interject here and we can come back to it. But what I found fascinating in the late, about 40 years in, in the late 70s, there was Paul Kupperberg did World of Krypton, a three-part arc. I think Howie Chaikin did some of the artwork. Um, but that is all the stories about Krypton. And you learn that Jor-El's father was named Jor-El. Jor-El had a twin brother named Nimel. And then, obviously, there was uh, Zor-El, who was uh, Supergirl's father. But I, I just loved how it created this you know, it, it pulled together all the stories over maybe 35 years, the backstory of Krypton. Um, but that that started in this newspaper strip, you know, where they speak about just so many things, you know, uh, the Science Council, the unstable core, the buildings, the uh, Krypton quakes. Yeah, 100 percent. And you've you've hit on this a couple of times. And, and this is true. I mean, even in that Action Comics number one, that breakdown of how his powers work. You know, there is this idea in these earliest stories that, like, everyone on Krypton has powers. It's, you know, it comes later, this idea that it's actually Earth's gravity and sun that right. gives Superman his powers. It was interesting to read that early on. And you start to see a shift. I forget exactly the story where this starts, but there starts to be a shift a little bit later on where it's more about, uh, you know, Krypton is a place of, uh, you know, advanced intelligence and beauty. Like, it, it's more of it's a, a culture. A utopia. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's more of like a cultural advancement as opposed to, like, it's a race of supermen. Yes. In the earliest stories, it was this race of superpowered beings. And then it became more of an intellectual advanced society. Even, like, some of the stories like, right. oh, uh, little Johnny's one year old. He can't do engineering yet, you know, and they started opening that up where they were scientifically and spiritually and from a civilization standpoint, just the height uh, of just advancement. Yes. And so again, you know, you see here in terms of introducing his Kryptonian parents, his Kryptonian name, this, this initial tension of Jor-El knows this planet is doomed and no one will listen to him. You know, the newspaper strips uh, really add a lot. And not to get political. And I feel like I've, I've, I've been delving a little bit into this on various episodes because it's just like so, it's like right friggin' there. Um, you know, this idea of uh, the council not believing Jor-El. Uh, I can't help but bring this up because, you know, you and I, we're recording this uh, over Zoom, right? Instead of how we would normally do this, which would be face-to-face. -face. And the reason is because we've been in the midst of a pandemic for the past year. And we've had a doctor on the TV a lot explaining to people what's going on and what people need to do to try to stop that. Yet, as much as a lot of people thankfully have followed the measures that have been prescribed, there are plenty of people who haven't. 
and I will, I'm not going to lie. It gave me a newfound, it gave me a newfound appreciation for Jor-El because I think in the past, if you like a few years ago, I don't know how, how compelling I necessarily found his part of the story. This idea that like he knows the planet is doomed. No one will heed his warning. But now after what we've lived through, it's like, oh yeah, no, I get it. I can completely see how a council might disregard <laughs> the advice of their foremost scientists <laughs> um, because it's inconvenient for them. So uh, I, I, you know, again, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but real world events have made me um, appreciate this more aspect conscious. of the Superman story like a more lot conscious. more. Yeah, more a lot more. Jarrell's the Fauci of his time. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. So there's one other thing I got to ask you about this because this made me laugh. And this is something, this is one of the things that I tracked. Did you notice, Rich, how in the various tellings, the amount of room in the rocket changes? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. No. Uh, yes. That rocket. And there were certain times. So three things I'll say. We got to get to this, right? In some of the earliest stories, Kal-El is out of the rocket, then it explodes, and it's absolutely vaporized, incinerated, destroyed. Uh, then, in in the first story I ever read, Superman 146, did you notice how he's he's jettisoned out of the rocket and he lands in the field with a thud? Yeah. You know, the, the word thud is used. Um, but then the thing, the, a beautiful story, we're going to get to it in 1973. I don't know how, because... The Kents find him. They put the rocket on the back of their pickup truck and drive to the orphanage. Now, I don't, how in God's name did Jonathan Kent get that rocket on the back of his truck? And then plus the fact, if someone looks out the window from the orphanage, you're going to see this huge red and blue rocket, right? So that rocket, um, you spoke about consistency. I think the consistency is there's always a rocket. Uh, but... Uh, beyond that, there's a little bit of variety. There is. I mean, the thing that I was getting at is that, you know, here it's established that it only fits one, right? He, they can Which only fit baby Kal-El, right? Which, Which makes smart. plenty of sense. Which is, now, I'm jumping yeah. ahead a little bit. And, you know, I, again, I still do want to go chronologically, but I want to kind of jump off here and there because I think it's where it's appropriate. In More Fun Comics 101 in 1945, right, which introduces this idea of Superboy, which we don't like. But the other, like, bonkers aspect of that, and you see this in some of the other tellings as well, is that in in that incarnation, Lara could fit in the rocket. But she refuses. Yes. Which is, look, I know I say this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think a mother would want to protect her infant child, right? As opposed to, no, I'll stay with my husband. Let this infant go off into the unknown, right? And granted, I, I started realizing, hey, they've always—he's always going to get to Earth. I did—I didn't realize that in some earlier readings, but I think they were better served when the rocket could only hold the infant. And there's some other stories where he had like a test rocket with crypto in it. Yeah. And then, you know, a meteor hit it or an asteroid hit it and it got put off course. And then ultimately crypto made it to earth. But I think the, the writers would have been better served only to have enough room to have it be more of an experimental rocket. Um, 
and then rationalize, rationalize why only the infant could survive. A hundred percent. It's, you know, from the perspective of either parent, it just, there's no, and, and again, I know I say this in a lot of episodes because my perspective has shifted a lot after becoming a parent. I, that's why I'm glad I'm doing this podcast now. Cause it's like, I, you know, the, the Krypton sequences, the Smallville sequences, they like, they hit me in a completely different way than, than they did before as much as I enjoyed them previously. But like the idea that the mother would say like, no, like let's send him off into the unknown Alone. by himself because I have to stay here by you. The fact that Jor-El is just like, okay. It's like, I know my wife would never say that. And if she did, I'd be like, no, you got to get in the rocket. Like, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really bad. It, it's an aspect that I really wish they had, they had just stayed away from. Cause I, I, and again, that, that's not in the newspaper strip that comes later on. Um, but it just, it, it, it's kind of crazy to me. And then, um, I guess I'll just continue this thread while while we're here. This is jumping way, way ahead, but in the Bronze Age, in Action Comics 500, uh, this was, I don't know if this made an impression on you. Uh, this was an issue that I actually, is not available digitally or in collected form as far as I could tell, but I ordered it on eBay because I wanted to have it. And uh, Jorah, and this is 1979, and maybe this is a sign of the times, in that case, there is room for two on the rocket. Jorel basically shades Lara for her weight. He's like, you could, f I mean, literally, is what he says. He's like, you know, you could fit, but I don't know what the added weight is going to do to the rocket. And she's like, I guess I'll just stay here then. It's like, <laughs> it's like, why? This, I, I don't know. It's just so, also, and, let me say this. Wait, I just want to say this real quick because I, you know, I don't want this to come across as like I'm I'm critiquing these these stories of decades past. I know they were different times. I appreciate what they did, um, but it's just viewing them through a modern lens. It's some of the things are kind of funny to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was going to say, you know what? It would have been. How shall I say it? All we get is a word balloon. Like, hey, maybe you could get in. They could have. This was such an easy fix to say, look, it can only hold one or it's engineered. It, you know, it, it's still a prototype. Let's give our child the, the best option. They could have, there could have been a way to make it non-controversial and let just, just the infant be put in there. Um, so that does frustrate me. Yeah, the rocket, the size of the rocket. And then frankly, I know we're jumping around, but Again, Superman 146, I read in that 80-page that giant. I was oh, two months shy of nine years old. But even the cover of that thing, I mean, all of a sudden, he's not an infant. He's like a three-year-old kid. You know? I mean, so even his age was somewhat elastic. Uh, and I liked it better when he was more of an infant. I really did. Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, the, again, the last thing I'll say with the size of the rocket, just to kind of you know, uh, you know, complete this thought is just, I, I would, I would be very curious to know what the motivation was, you know, in that, in that 1945 more fun comic story and subsequent stories. It's like, why, why, why introduce that notion? I just like, I don't, uh, I don't know what it what, adds. What, I feel yeah, like it you... takes away, like it just takes away from both of them as parents, to be honest, that she's willing to well, stay, that he's willing to let her. Actually, if, you, if we're going to be uh, critiquing uh, the love a parent has for a child, uh, that Adventures of uh, Superman TV show, in the very first episode, 
I mean, Jorel said, Lara, get in there. You know, <laughs> the baby and I are going to die, but you'll be safe. I mean, he was not the loving father that I've come to picture uh, Jonathan Kent as. But even on the TV show, he was just so cold hearted. Uh, he wanted to protect his wife at the expense of his child. Yeah, that's a that's such a great point. Uh, yeah. And, you know, again, I think some of these things and, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Adventures of Superman. Um but I, I think it, part of it at least, does reflect, you know, notions of masculinity at the time, right? You know, in the last episode I talked to Mark Wade. one of the things that I loved about Superman Birthright, and I know I'm jumping to post-crisis just for a second, but, um, you know, is this, in Birthright, Jor-El is the emotional one. Jor-El says to Lara, like, I don't think I can do this. I love him too much. I can't risk this. And it's like, what a, de- what a welcome departure for Jor-El, especially yeah. in these various pre-crisis tellings, in particular Superman on Earth from Adventures of Superman. I mean, that's about as cold a Jor-El, I think, is, as you see. Yeah. And I think it's amplified because it's on screen and you're seeing this actually portrayed. It's like, this guy yes. doesn't give a second thought to shoving that kid in that, in that tin can. It's like, just go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I agree. The, and I then... Agree. Um, uh, Yo, know, you mentioned too about the rocket, um, where in a lot of these instant, in a lot of these pre-crisis tellings, the rocket blows up, like or it lands and then it it combusts, right? Um, yes. And there are a couple variations where like the Kens keep it, but that's very you know, there are very few of those. For the most part, uh, we don't deal with the rocket, which I love. I do love the post-crisis tellings where that's the way. In a lot of these tellings, that's the way the Kents tell Clark about his alien origin it's like they show him the ship and it's like this big moment okay now we're going to get to it in superman 146 the rocket is super important on multiple levels um and you tell me when you want to start yeah delving I, into that yeah let's um I, a couple more things i want to get to and the, but the last thing i want to say about the newspaper strips and i guess this undermines a little bit of what we said before about the consistency because although this is still this is 1939 this is so early there are no kents in the newspaper strips. It's a motorist, oh. again, who brings him to the orphanage. So it's like there's yes. a little bit of backtracking yes. there. Yes. One one dilemma we're going to see is that it takes the writers and the creators a long time to balance Krypton and balance his life as an adolescent on Smallville. Usually it's one or the other. So it was very, very welcome when they got to some of the stories where I, I think probably that 1973 one was possibly the best at balancing the two, uh, but we'll we'll get to that. So on that note, can we talk about the 1940? Uh, I know the serial ran for many years, but it started the radio serial started in in 1940. Um, you had brought this up when we did our Adventures of Superman episode. I actually listened to it. So before I even talk about the specifics, I got to tell you, and I, I I would love to hear from you. So I had never, I knew the radio show existed. I knew it was a big thing for a good number of years. They did a a vast number of episodes, um, but I had never listened to any. And I listened to the first couple to to prepare for this. And I really enjoyed it. It was this really kind of beautiful mix of of something retro because you don't really, although it's funny now because with the, with the age of podcasts, there are now scripted podcasts. And, you know, I think like both, I don't know about DC, but I know Marvel, at least they have a number of, like there's a Wolverine podcast, for example, 
Um, so the, this idea of the radio play, I think, has kind of come back around with the advent of podcasts. But I think still overall, it, it's this really, uh, you know, this this retro form of telling a story. Yet at the same time, there's something almost timeless about about these radio shows because they're not you know it's like you watch the Kirk Allen movie serial or you watch the George Reeves TV show we we enjoy them a lot for various reasons but at the same time you're still always reminded that they're a product of the the 40s and 50s right and they're limited in terms of um, their budget their production value the special effects but with a radio show it's just the voice right and that's that's timeless so um, I really had a good time. You know, someone, one of my listeners or viewers had requested an episode on the radio show at some point, and I don't know when that will be or what form it will take or like how many episodes I'll cover, but I, I will do something on the radio show in the future because I think it's a really, it's a very interesting entry in the Superman canon. Um, now, did you, I guess you did, right? Did you listen to uh, this, the, the origin episodes uh, yes, recently? Yes, I listened to, I listened to the first three episodes and I was able to get, you know, some other ones here and there. And we, Oh my God, there is so such an abundance of creative information from the radio show that influenced the other medium. I mean, tremendously, uh, kryptonite, uh, mayor, mayor, Perry white, you know, Mary, he was the mayor before he became the editor. Um, and I think he was also uh, a presidential or vice presidential uh, nominee. Oh, is that all but, in the radio uh, show? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. And quite frankly, it got to the point in the radio show where, quite frankly, Batman and Robin, <laughs> towards the end, were you, you would have thought they lived in Metropolis. There were so many adventures with Batman and Robin, uh, either helping Superman out or filling in when uh, the voice actor for Superman was on vacation. <laughs> but... Um, Real fast, I listened to the first three, and I remember telling you about this when uh, you know when we first started digging. But in in the radio show, he appears. He's put in the rocket, and it tracks just like the Adventures of Superman show. He's put in the rocket. He arrives on Earth, full grown, full grown, and he's Superman. Right, just comes out of that rocket, and he's Superman. You know, you had you described it to me when we did the the Adventures of Superman episodes, and then I and I it caught my attention. And then when I listened to it, I was like, "Wow, this is a real bold choice." And I don't know why, but you know what? I think they had to. I think they had to start strong because maybe if they didn't get ratings or something like that, it, I, they, who knows how. They didn't make a commitment that we're going to keep you on for a year. So there might have been like, hey, let's let's see how the first few episodes go. So I thought they made a, a conscious choice, a deliberate choice to start. we got to get Superman out there right away. So, like, I get what you're saying. I don't disagree with that. But uh, actually, just to kind of uh, bring this bring this together. So, you know, the next major entry on the list, because uh, I have a lot more to say about the radio show, but the next major entry is the Fleischer uh is the Fleischer cartoon in 1941, right? And the first episode of that, and I'll probably do an episode on Fleischer, either a standalone episode or at a minimum, it'll be a larger part of the golden age discussion that's coming up. Our mutual friend, Mike San Gregorio, will be joining me for that. He uh, 
Uh, the, he's Good. the, you, you might expect Good. he, I would, I would have found someone who, like, I don't know, uh, a, a grandparent who like, like lived through the golden age, but he's a contemporary who loves the golden age. We'll have a great and chat. He, he eats it up and he, he's able to comment on it. I mean, yeah. Superman circa 1940, he is the expert. So, you know, we're going to be, so my point is we're going to be talking more about the Fleischer cartoon, but the first episode of the Fleischer cartoon gives you the origin essentially from action one, um, with the exception of, uh, the planet Krypton is named, but Jor-El is not named. It's a motorist who brings the baby to an orphanage and then he's Superman. That's it. It's real bare bones. It's quick. It's like two minutes of the first Fleischer cartoon, if that. And so, uh, I guess I mentioned that because it's like with the radio show, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, they could have, like they could have done the whole Krypton thing and then they could have just said, and years later he emerged. It was just so, it was such an odd choice to me to make it that he grew to adulthood in the rocket and emerged from the rocket fully costumed. Yeah, but I think they they recon, retrocon yes, that yeah. later in time. They did. Um, you know, after after I guess... They, they had a good, stable foundation. They retconned that. Uh, um, but wait, can you tell the, can you, can you please do the honors? I know you'll enjoy this. Can you just share, because I think this is hilarious, uh, in, in, that, in that early radio show, because yes, you're right, they did retcon it later on, but initially, you know, he emerges from the rocket fully formed. Um, how does he come up with the name Clark Ken, and why does he decide to work at a newspaper, Rich? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this still flabbergasts me. I think it's, a, I think it's, and Anthony, I apologize. I haven't thought about this for months. So I'm doing it off memory, but I think in the second episode, some grandfather and grandson are going to go to a County fair. They're on a trolley. Something happens. The trolley starts careening down this huge hill, right? Massive destruction. Superman is like hovering up, you know, super high in the sky. He spots them, swoops down, saves everybody, right? But the grandfather and the grandson are just stunned. And Superman says, you know, I guess you could call me a Superman, right? And he goes, how can I learn about your culture? How can I learn about you humans? And this kid just in like nine words, you know what? You ought to call yourself Clark Kent and you ought to work for the Daily Planet. It's like nine words. That's it. I mean, with, and he, he says it with such confidence. You ought to call yourself Clark Kent and you ought to be a newspaper reporter. You know, you again, you had described that to me and I believed you and I found it humorous, but it was a whole other level when I was I was I found him on YouTube, like the first few and I was listening to them and I was like, this is like bonkers. It's wild. And it's funny too, because I think the kid says something, or the father or the kid, someone says like, you know, a, like a like a common name, like a nondescript name, like Clark. Again, I, it was a different time, like Clark, Clark Gable, but it's like, how many Clarks? Do you, like, that's not the most, that's not like Joe Smith, right? It's, it, you know, it's a little more unique, but, but just the idea that that's how he's named and also do, and I know all that, maybe I'm nitpicking, but whatever. Uh, I think this is why we're doing this. You know, when the kid's like, you should, or, you know, you should get a job at a newspaper. Like, how does he even know what a newspaper is? <laughs> well, hey, for that matter, how does he even understand English, right? Yeah. How many languages are, are there on this planet? Uh, yeah, but I want, you know, like, I wonder too, like, you know, thankfully he met a, you know, father, if it was a father or grandfather, right, and kid, like, who were good people. What if he met criminals, 
And they were like, you oh, know, actually, you've got, yeah. Anthony, I got to tell you, that is key to me. I, I don't remember the story, but I, I did say I bought uh, that reprint of Superman 146. But a year earlier, uh, like in 19, I read the reprint in 65. It was published in 61. But in 1959 or 1960, there was this weird story where it was called the Super Menace from Krypton. And what happened is when the rocket uh, left Krypton, when it was launched from Krypton, somehow some aliens shot a ray on it and it created a, a perfect copy of Superman who was found by gangsters and raised evil. And it was, uh, I'll find it. But that was my first exposure. And I was maybe seven years old. And I got so confused by this story because it didn't track with the TV show. But there was this perfect copy of Superman, except he had a black domino mask and he was evil. Um, but it confused me because that was my that was the first time I ever learned about Krypton, and I, I just couldn't process it. That's why that Superman one forty six made so much was so valuable to me. Understood. Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, it was so funny. Like if anyone hasn't listened, and probably a lot of people haven't listened to the old radio serial, uh, I, I really do recommend it. It's it's uh, it was a very an odd choice. Um, and I mean, I think this goes without saying. I don't, you know. You know, I don't like the idea of Superboy. I definitely don't like the idea that he just emerges like fully formed, full grown. Yeah, full yeah. grown. Uh, it was it was a very very interesting. But like I said, I do plan to do more with the radio show. And you know, very very recently during the pandemic, I know they um, they redid some of the old radio shows with uh, you know with with current actors. Um, and so I think maybe I don't know that might kind of be my jumping off point for something like that because I think it's um, it was cool like. The weird choice aside, uh, for for this origin story, uh, like it was fun to listen to. It was it was really pretty cool. So uh, I appreciate you giving me the heads up about that. And you also gave me a heads up about. And I know for people who are listening, you're not going to see this, but for our uh, YouTube viewers, the Adventures of Superman, a 1942 novel uh, about the Man of Steel. Um, now you came across this on the that Superman through the Ages website. Was it through there that you came that you discovered it or no? No, no I, I I think I googled uh, origins of Superman or what what are the best origin stories? Uh, I did not learn about that through my my Superman through the ages website. I learned out about it somewhere else, and oh, I know what it was. I was trying to track down uh, the names Eben and Sarah. So I was trying to learn, you know, when was the first time they used the names Eben, Eben and Sarah? Uh, and that's how I learned about that. And then to go a step further, uh, I think that was published in 1942. But it was, it was completely a novel. It ties into what you said at the, at the start, the outset of this discussion, that every medium possible, he was hitting on all, all cylinders. Um, I don't have that. I, I, I looked for it. And I, did, I wasn't as thorough as you, but I looked for it and there was something like, you know, uh, a first edition, $3,600. I said, you know what? Maybe I'll just keep doing some Google searches. You know, I got I to gotta confess, I was going to mess with you. Uh, so what the, what the copy that I have, so they, <laughs> so there was a, so there was a, re, they did a reprint in 1995 and um, they note this in a couple of places uh, on here that it's a, it's a faithful reproduction 
with one exception, they added uh, an introduction by Roger Stern, the comic book writer, and it's a great introduction. Um, but uh, other than that, it's the same as what was published in 1942. But, uh, you know, you, you had given me the heads up about this. You did not know about the reprint. And after we got off the phone, I started searching. And yes, I, I too went on eBay and I was, you know, I saw copies for a significant amount of money for the original print. And I was like, well, that's, you know, I, I love doing this podcast, but it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. Um, and then I think... I don't know. I think I left eBay and I just did a general Google search and I saw an Amazon listing come up and the price was like $25. And I'm like, that, that can't be right. And so, and then I realized I went there and I saw that it was, it was a rebrand. I was going to mess with you and I was just going to surprise you during this. And I'm going to be, and you know, what's amazing too. And I think you can see this even through the, the zoom here. It's like, what great condition. I was yes. going to be like, I found a pristine near mint copy of this 1942 <laughs> novel, <laughs> 5,000 bucks. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steph and I are not getting a new car for three years, but I got this five. <laughs> but Anthony, I got to tell you, we're going to cover a lot. A couple of chapters in that book, my three favorite stories, uh, a couple of chapters in that book are my favorites. Uh, I haven't read them. I've only picked up excerpts, oh. but it blew me away. Uh, and one thing <laughs> I'll say, I was going to say, I'm like, you haven't even read it. How are they your favorite stories? <laughs> no, I'll tell you why it, it, it will really dovetail with your perception and your sensibilities, but I want to wait till we get to it. But, um, uh, let me say this before we dig into this, let me give this as backdrop. I did read on one of the websites where apparently, um, Siegel was going to do the book. And somewhere I did get to read his first chapter and he sent it into the editor and the editor basically said, Oh, this is a piece of garbage. So they pushed Siegel aside and they hired a uh, George uh, Lothar, L O W T H E R. Now apparently Lothar was just very versatile, like a jack of all trades. He was a narrator in a number of radio shows. He wrote radio shows. He wrote this novel. Um, so a very versatile uh, creator. Um, I always thought, and I had to do research on this, I thought out of retaliation, Siegel created the name Luther because he was so resentful that Lo this guy Lothar did it. But then I find out that, hey, Luther appeared like a year and a half or two years prior to this story. Yeah, I mean, when you had when you had mentioned that initially, I was like, yeah, that would make a lot of sense if, you know, he was, you know, he felt uh, put off by that. And, and that became the inspiration for Luther. Uh, so I tracked down the, again, the 1995 reprint, which is the same as the original 1942 edition with this introduction by Roger Stern, which was which was really fascinating and gave a lot of context, um, particularly it, it really highlighted uh, what this novel added um, to the mythology. So some things that are minor, others that are more significant. So uh, this is where we first get the names Eben and Sarah, right? So, uh, you know, again, initially, uh, you know, when we first meet the Kents, we get Mary for the mother and that's it, right? We don't get John. Uh, so this gives us Eben and Sarah and that carries through to the Kirk Allen and George Reeves uh, adaptations, yeah. right? Yes. So yes. that gives us Eben and Sarah. It also gives us the more traditional spellings of Jor-El with an E-L, and Kal-El and Lara instead of uh, Laura. Laura. Um, the other thing too that um, that Roger Stern uh, called out here is that in a departure from the other pre-crisis stories where uh, 
Clark has his powers from throughout his childhood. Um, and I haven't gotten it. I only read the first couple of chapters of this. I haven't read the whole thing. But uh, apparently in this 1942 novel, the, the powers emerge over time in a way that's far more consistent with the post-crisis tellings of the character um, that we see in, in Man of Steel and other, in other stories and the Smallville TV show. They're like they're brought on with, with adolescence, right? Um, as he's entering, you know, puberty in his teenage years, like that's when the, when the powers are emerging. It's not that he's, you know, lifting furniture over his head at the orphanage necessarily. So that you know, was something that, uh, that Roger Stern, um, uh, called out. And I think that's very, very interesting. And then the, the last thing, not substantive, but just in terms of the publishing of this, uh, there was, they did a, I guess you talk about a rare collector's item. I can't imagine how many copies of this are even still floating out there, but they did an armed services edition of this book, um, that they sent to troops, um, which, which was just fascinating to me, uh, the idea that, you know, this was, uh, was distributed in that way. And it's like, um, it's, it's, it's cool that they had that. And, uh, it's like, yeah, imagine, okay, can you imagine how many, uh, copies of that are even in existence? Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, I'll say this, what I loved about this, and I for, Anthony, I forget what website. I just can't remember because um, what what triggered me was I tr- was trying to learn what was the origin and the starting point and the derivation of Eben and Sarah, and that's how I learned about uh, uh, the book uh, by that you just held up. But for me, I think I think the first two or three chapters are all set on Krypton. Then there's two or three chapters where he is a child and he's growing, um, growing up. And then, and then he's an adult and he's hired by the newspaper and he has to go up to Maine and chase some Nazi uh, submarine spies and stuff like that. But what amazed me, what stunned me, and I've never seen this in all my readings, it had really an X-Men vibe. Uh, the sort of thing that you educated me on about Smallville and why you loved Smallville, because it showed him learning about his powers and 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 being anxious and scared, like I'm different. The, the only two things I read in this story were that there was some episode in school where his X-ray vision manifests itself for the first time, and he sees something that's uh, stuck behind a drawer in the teacher's desk. And then all the kids think that he did something nefarious, like he rummaged through or he hit it so the girl couldn't get the award. And then the following chapter is something happens and he flies for the first time and he's terrified. He doesn't even tell his parents that he's got the ability to fly. And he was just so terrified and scared. And that harkens to everything you told me, even when I watched some of the early, early episodes of Smallville. I never saw that in these other origin stories. Like even in, in 146 or in, in the 1973 one, he's very confident with his powers. He doesn't second guess them. But this this fascination that he might be terrified because he's different, I really uh, salute Lothar for kind of fleshing that out because that had never ever been contemplated earlier. Well said. No, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and again, I only read the first couple of chapters, but I do plan to to dive into the rest of it at some point. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways it was ahead of its time, um, especially with, with respect to the powers. I mean, yeah, you know, that's the thing you're, I mean, you're hundred percent right. It's like in these, in these pre-crisis stories, it's like either 
you you barely see him at all as a kid or if you do it's like yeah he's in command of his powers they're not a burden they're not something he's trying to figure out and you know again i think so much of this just changes with the times and you know by the time we get to the post crisis stories and the super smallville television series it's like it it becomes you know something to mine it's like it it's like mm. well okay like we can this is something explore to explore this. here like yeah like he's this wouldn't necessarily be something that comes so naturally and it would be scary and you know in and of itself and also in terms of how other people would 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 take it so uh yeah i i mean i and again that's what i grew up reading and watching so it's like i i love that angle and i think it's cool that that was here i mean it's funny like obviously it didn't this didn't take root right um because the rest of the pre-crisis stories you know are do not follow it but um it, it's kind of it's kind of wild that this got at that idea so early on 1942 right Right. Yeah. Right. So, and, yeah. Thank you for putting. Thank you for turning me on to this book. Yeah. Um, no, I'm thrilled. Later in time, I'd I'd love to borrow it from you. I would love to read Roger Stern's uh, just his analysis and his forward, his thoughts. I would really, really appreciate that. But it is kind of an aberration. It stands out, right? They did this, and then it was only later, like like you told me in Smallville, where they start exploring that. You know, like. What was it like when the, his powers just incrementally started manifesting? Uh, how did he react? But the, the the story that when he first flew, he flew, and he was terrified to even tell his parents that, you know, something was wrong with him. I would have loved to have read that chapter just, just to really mine it and see what it's worth. Yeah. No, I mean, you're more than welcome to borrow. My pleasure. Um, I, like I said, I only read the first couple chapters, but even in that, there there were some cool little details. Uh, the, the one thing that really jumped out was when we see Jorel addressing the council, going back to this poor guy, <laughs> getting ridiculed and ignored. But they they describe him as uh, like he's really thin, like almost gaunt, like he's so stressed and haggard, like from from uh, you know trying to figure out what's going on with the planet um and they like they really take the time to describe him and it's a it's an added little layer that you don't typically see in these other in these other aspects it's like he's really worn the weight of trying to figure out what's going on with the planet and warn everyone has taken its toll on him it was interesting, interesting. Yeah. so so he's gaunt and thin and just yeah, frenzied or just just worn down that's fast and that's what you'd expect like he's probably right. carrying no pun intended the the weight of the world on his shoulders probably not getting sleep you know and and just so scared and concerned for civilization that's fascinating because in in all the comic books he's basically a clone to superman you know he's pretty fit you know he's got the same haircut uh that's interesting. Yeah, it was it was a cool little angle that they took. Um, so yeah, that's the 1942 novel by George Lothar, 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 uh, The Adventures of Superman, uh, reprinted in 1995. For anyone who wants to check it out, it's, again, the reprint is fairly affordable, you know, whether Amazon or eBay, you know, wherever you get it. Um, so if anyone's curious, uh, you know, again, I, I know I say this in a lot of these episodes, but there's a reason why I call this a Superman fan journey. I'm, you know, I'm not holding myself up as an expert. I'm learning as I go. And, and despite, you know, my lifelong fandom of Superman, I had no idea this book existed. So, so thank you for turning me on to it. Uh, so that's 1942, 1945, more fun comics, 101, five page origin story. We talked about this before, right? This introduces the idea of Superboy, the fact that there were, there was room for two in the rocket and Lara, you know, frustratingly, uh, says, no, I'll stay here with you. <laughs> um, this one also, I noticed, 
there was more talk, uh, again, going back to what we were saying before about the Kryptonians' intelligence and beauty, uh, and they also talk about the gravity on Earth. So we're starting to get into yes. this idea that, like, okay, there's a reason why Superman has the powers that he does, like a scientific yes. reason. It's not just yes. everyone on Krypton um, has these abilities. Of course, this introduces the idea of Superboy, which we've talked about, and... Again, the, I know I know I started this by saying there's a lot of consistency, but there there are some like weird inconsistencies. So here, the motorist, the motorist. it's the motorist comes back, he brings the baby to the orphanage, and then they can't adopt him. So that's like yet another variation on uh, who finds him and and you know what what happens at that point. Was there anything else about more fun comics that that stood out to you? No, I mean uh, of of the twelve or fourteen stories I read, it's the only one that I think created a bump. It stood out like a sore thumb. I, I know, like I said, I know why they did it from a business standpoint. It was, it was low lying fruit. It was easy revenue. Right. And there was so much enthusiasm for Superman. They had Superman, they had Lois Lane. They had so many titles. Let's just open up another one. But I think it did a disservice to the character because that's the beauty of everything post-crisis, both with what Byrne did and what, what um, Wade did and, and Jeff Johns. Watching the adolescent mature, I, I think, provided richer, richer stories and, and things that resonated more with the audience. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, and again, not to belabor the point, but I just I feel like there are ways to, again, the idea of him operating, you know, in Smallville, helping people like we saw on the television show and, and in a lot of the post-crisis comics. It's like he's doing good, but he's just not wearing a costume. Um, but anyway, we'll come back to There's more Superboy to come in this episode. Uh, but that brings us to, you know, really the the longest uh, up until this point, the longest telling of the origin on the 10 year anniversary in 1948, we get Superman 53, uh, by Bill Finger and Wayne Boring. Um, what, what stood out to you about, uh, this, this story? A couple of things. And I'm sorry, this is one I really didn't prepare to speak about. Oh, okay. I read it in, in, uh, uh, Superman is 75 years. Um, so this is all spontaneous Georgia. Uh, this was probably how many, Every story since then has built on this foundation. So in these 10 pages, uh, who wrote it? Bill Finger. Bill Finger wrote it yeah. on the 10th anniversary. It really defined, it wasn't focused on Krypton as much as it was Clark growing up. Um, it had the thing at the end where Jonathan's lying in bed just before he dies and tells him, you've got to be responsible. Uh, I guess what stood out in my mind, candidly, what really did irk me was there's no mention of Superboy at all. Meanwhile, for four years, he's been published, right? So the, the lack of consistency, and, and I know you've made jokes about me focusing on how editors should, should really uh, tighten up the story, but there's no mention at all of Superboy in this story. Uh, uh, you know, all, you, all of a sudden, you see Clark in that blue suit without glasses next to his, the, his father's deathbed. Um, yeah, uh, this story was a new foundation and they tapped into it more in all subsequent stories. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, and I know some of these things we had touched on before. So, you know, here we see the grave with John and Mary. Uh, so we have their, you know, their names, you know, uh, f fully confirmed uh, for us. 
Although again, they'll 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 change. But um, uh, and again, the, this yeah, this was I think the first time they gave. It's not just a doomed planet. Uh, I think they spoke about Jorel spoke about this uh, the uranium, uranium uh, an unstable core. The uranium's unstable, uh, which was the first time they spoke about not just the cause of the Krypton quakes or the earthquakes, but more what caused the uh, the planet to explode. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good point because uh, that was one of the other things that I was kind of tracking. Because you know, again, in Action One, it's just a, a doomed planet, like dying of old or a distant planet dying of old age. Um, and I think in some of those earlier stories, like it's kind of nebulous about like exactly what's going on here. And this crystallizes a little bit more that, uh, again, it's an unstable core. And I think that's been relatively consistent, uh, you know, throughout. And you had hit on this before, but I just want to I just want to, you know, you know, bring it home because I think I was surprised by this, that I think in pretty much every pre-crisis incarnation where we spend any time with Jor-El um, he's aiming Kal-El for Earth, um, which I guess, I don't know, in my mind, maybe I, I don't I don't know where this came from, but I think I had more of a conception of like, it was kind of like a shot in the dark. Um, but the, the, like it really, like Earth was was pretty much always the destination. And in one, was it this issue or I guess it was, yeah, this one where even some of the scientists on Krypton are going, oh, wow, on Earth, we would have superpowers. We would be so much stronger. That was the first time, where it resonated with me that on Krypton, they don't have the superpowers we saw in the newspaper strip. They're super intelligent, they're um, advanced in intelligence, but there was consciousness that, hey, given the different uh, gravity, we'll be, we'll have super strength on the planet Earth. Yeah, so you definitely see a shift there. And then um, I think the the death of the Kents becomes more more of a of a factor that's propelling him forward here. And you do have here it's like Ma dies first, and then we have the the you know the the, death the deathbed scene with with Pa Kent, where I think this is the so it's funny because a lot of them are blending together. That's why I'm glad I I have notes here. But <laughs> I think I feel like right in this story we see like there's at least a full page. Of various panels of the Kents, like seeing him use his powers, I, I believe. Yeah, I, I will say I didn't like the artwork in this. I didn't think the artwork held up that well compared to subsequent stories. It was just not colored well. Right. Uh, sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, no, that's quite all right. But I, so again, and if I've gotten some of these details mixed up with something else, I apologize. But I, I, I think you know we see the Kents. No, we do right. I think this is the story where it's like. Uh, he sees Ma's glasses behind the dresser and, and, and things like that. And, you know, the Kents are kind of like marveling at his powers. And then it's uh, like really on Pa's deathbed where he's like, hey, you got to do something with these powers. And that's that's the final motivator to to move forward. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how to articulate this, but it was. I guess we can read between the lines and say, like, listen, they were instilling good values and imparting life lessons along the way. It's just funny because if you read it really just on its face, it's like the Kents just seem like, wow, like look like they're like they keep marveling at his powers, but it's like in the last possible second, Pa Ken is like, Hey, listen, you really should do something with these. Yeah, but Anthony, didn't you observe that in the Kirk Allen things as well? I mean one thing I, I haven't seen it, but you told me the story about Kirk Allen, where it was like uh, he's sitting there reading a book, you know, and uh, Pa Kent goes, uh, "Hey, don't you think you ought to start doing something with your life?" And he just keeps reading it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I did talk about that when we did our, our Adventures of Superman episodes because I watched some of those Kirk Allen movie serials um, in anticipation because they came out just a few years before the George Reeves series. And um, again, very similar, I think, aesthetic and um, and tone. And the origin stories in particular hit a lot of the same beats. But yeah, in the Kirk Allen serial, yeah, there's this really funny scene where, you know, the Kents are all in the living room, like Clark's reading in his suit. He's just sitting there and like, the Eben and Sarah, like they give a look to each other, like, Hey, talk to this kid. And, uh, and, and his pause, like, you know, you really should do something with your powers. And then I guess the message doesn't really land because the next scene, the narrator is like, like finally upon the passing of the Kents, like Clark decided to honor like the request they had made of him. So uh, it took their passing to kind of propel him forward, but it's actually a, a great segue. Cause I wanted to ask you this. Um, cause this came up, um, in the last episode when I talked to, to Wade, you know, obviously in Superman birthright, um, he was working within the parameters of the existing continuity at the time where the Kents were alive. He shared in that episode, he prefers the version of the story where the Kents die. Um, he doesn't necessarily like the idea that the Kents remain as a sounding board for him. For you, as someone now who has read pre and post crisis, but grew up reading, you know, the silver age Superman um, how do you feel about the Kents? Like what role should they play? Is their death necessary to move him forward or do you prefer them there as advisors for him once he's an adult? Oh boy, I am so twisted and so torn on this, right? I genuinely like the fact that they're there as a sounding board uh, because well, I, I, if I can say this, you said this at the, at the start of this show. The world was entirely different when Superman first arrived, 1940, 1945. Life expectancy was significantly shorter. People were not living as long as they are today. So now we have situations where you might have a 50-year-old whose parents are still very active, right? So I do like the parents being an influence and being a sounding board and being a, a moral resource. But I thought it was so powerful when Superman, for all his powers, they both die and there's not anything he can do. I mean, it wasn't like he caused their death. It wasn't like, hey, he forgot to get the brakes checked on the car and they drove. And, you know, it, it kind of shows that for all his omnipotent power, he was helpless in the face of uh, them each dying. I thought that that just the emotional trauma, the emotional power was just really, really. So I, I, I'm sorry to be uh, uh, babbling. I, I've got two very divergent opinions, and I think they both kind of have a, a valid, a valid uh, position. No, I, you know, I get what you're saying, and uh, I've. You know, as you know, and our audience knows, I mean, again, I grew up with the post-crisis Superman. I like the idea of both of the Kents being there. I do, you know, the passing of Pa to kind of, you know, impart that lesson that he can't save everyone and also to sort of mark the end of, of really his childhood and, and setting him off on this quest uh, to find out who he's going to be moving forward. You know, I do see the value in that. It also elevates Martha. If Jonathan's not there, it gives her more to do. She now becomes the the advisor so I'm a little, I guess I'm a little bit more mixed on Jonathan. Like I do see, I like him alive, but I do see from a story perspective, from, from drama, it's like there's, 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 you can do a lot with that. As far as both of the Kents going, um, I guess ultimately I'm opposed to that, but 
there is, I, I mean, I guess I will say going through all of these pre-crisis stories, yeah, there is something about like that Smallville chapter closing for him, right? Like that's that's one distinct chapter that's now closed and that's part of his past. Um, and and then again, the fact that the passing, like that's the final that's the final moment that 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 pushes him forward. I get it. It's still not. It doesn't necessarily resonate with me. It's not my favorite. You know what hurt me on an emotional level, or really touched me, was. Uh, I didn't realize it till I read these stories that the Kents died almost at the exact same time Clark graduated high school, right? In, in the stories, you seem to think, you know, because this was so truncated, boom, he's a man, gets the job with the newspaper, and, you know, he's fully functional. When I started reading some of these stories where we're just touching on now between, say, 1949 and 1961, the realization that that deathbed scene where Jonathan imparts, hey, you've got you've got great powers, you've got to use them responsibly. He was basically an 18-year-old kid. That really devastated me because in my mind, you know, he was he was an adult and they died. He decided to leave Smallville and go take the newspaper job. But but reading these stories, it became clear that hey, geez, he's just graduated high school. He hasn't even gone to college yet. Right. Yeah. No, very, very true. Um, yeah, I think there's, cause you know, we're getting to the point now there's, there's one more, um, pre-crisis comic book story, Superman 61, where Superman discovers his origin. Um, but then after that, we're moving into silver age stories. And I feel like even though we're still losing the Kents and there is still that moment of sadness, uh, I feel like, yeah, there is a, and again, maybe going back to like the golden age and the social crusader and all of that, there's, I don't know, there is something a little bit darker or sadder about the, the, the golden age Superman origin story and the, and the passing of the Kents. Um, again, it's still sad when they die in the silver age, but, um, I don't know. There's, there's something about it and maybe that, you know, the timing of it, like you were saying. Um, but, but yeah, it, it is, it is sad when the Kents go, um, and, and, you know, it's interesting, too, and, you know, we'll get to this in the next episode where we talk about the post-crisis tellings. You know, in the New 52, they brought back this idea of the Kents dying, and that when they died, you know, in a car accident. So, you know, some of these things do come back around when, when you might not expect it. Um, yeah. But, but The only yeah. thing... Oh, no, go ahead. The only thing that... Uh, I, I'm giving Stan Lee much less credit for with great power comes from great responsibility... Because I'm starting to see like, hey, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> in 1948, 1949, they were using that phrase on the deathbed. Uh, Jonathan is is instilling, look, you've got great powers. You've got to use them responsibly. You've got to help people. Uh, so, so uh, you know, uh, I always thought that that phrase originated when Stan Lee first did Spider-Man. Now I'm kind of giving credit to, to uh, Bill Finger more for uh for what he did much earlier in time yeah and you know and again on his deathbed pa uses the name superman right so that at least i did appreciate that because then that makes more sense again we have this weird disconnect where now superboy has been established in earlier comics but he's not part of this origin story so we'll put that aside but the fact that it's like okay pa says the name superman so the fact that he then puts on a costume with a big s on his chest it's like well okay 
that makes sense, right? He's he has that name in his head. So, uh, but again, like that's the thing that was so worthwhile about this process was, you know, because again, like you 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 know all the beats of the story, but it's like, you know, the, just the name Superman. Like when was that first said? You know, as part of the origin story, and it's like you see all these little pieces you know, start to come together. Uh, and and I have to imagine part of it too, especially once we get past the initial Siegel and Schuster era and we, you know, other creators are working on the story, I have to imagine part of the additions, the new wrinkles to the origin story, you know, come about as a result of creators, you know, who who read these stories and maybe had their own questions. And it's like now they're, you know, now they have an opportunity to add to it or questions that readers had sent in over the years. It's like now, like you really start to see it, it, it evolve. Can I, can I use that as a stepping stone to yeah. the next, the next one in the, in the chronology? I had never read this story, Superman's Return to Krypton. Uh, there were like three pages of it on the website. I was so excited by this story. Uh, I went out and bought uh, a reprint of uh, golden age stories that had the whole thing in it. So I got all 10 pages. Now at first it's a silly story, but in retrospect, I really got to tip my hat to Bill Finger. I mean, I am so impressed by how inventive and the craftsmanship. And the reason I didn't realize this, Anthony, Superman 61 is the first kryptonite in comic books. It's the first kryptonite. So Bill Finger, I mean, the first five pages are very silly with that. Was it Swami Riva or something yeah. like that? Yeah. But he structured this story in like 12 or 13 pages where for the first time ever, Superman is just decimated. He's weak. He can be punched. He, knocked, he gets sick. He doesn't know what's causing it. He thinks it's a magical hex. And then, so they introduce kryptonite, but they use that as a stepping stone to let Superman go back and learn he's from Krypton. The story we just spoke about, uh, Superman 53, is Superman becoming Superman. This was the, and I'll say this, when I was eight, nine, and 10, and 12 years old, in the Silver Age, Super baby, super boy had total super memory. He had super recall. He could remember. He knew he was from Krypton. Uh, and later in time, the the Mon Pa Kent used the rocket to tell him. But this story in what 1949 was the first time that Superman learned his origin and learned of Krypton. And I thought, you know what, Bill Finger did just to structure it like, I'll introduce or I'll take from radio this radioactive mineral that that is can hurt and kill and be painful to Superman. I'll introduce it in comics, but I'll use that as a stepping stone to let him learn where he came from. I was just blown away by that. Uh, I, I, I kind of went on a talking jag there. Sorry about that. No, please don't apologize. No, that's, I, I, I couldn't agree more and I appreciate you laying that out. And yeah, that's, I, I know it's, it's like crazy to think about it, but all of these origin tellings that we're talking about, this is the reader being told Right. Right. Superman doesn't know. And yeah. And, you know, again, I think we're used to these modern incarnations where, again, the Kents keep the rocket and there's usually something in the rocket, a crystal, a disc, like something. 
and you know and and Clark is able to to learn where he comes from but in like we said before in most of these stories the rocket disintegrates or explodes you know once once it's on even if it lands then like the the fuel the rocket fuel like uh you know sparks and and is destroyed yeah. So it's like he would have no means of knowing where he comes from. So it's like, yeah, and then Superman 61, 1949, yeah, he goes up against the Swami who like puts a curse on him, but really it's, uh, it, there's kryptonite. Um, uh, yeah, in his, in his uh, turban. Yeah, and that's uh, what's affecting him. And, and, and Clark, Superman oh, eventually is able to figure this out, yeah. And, and even then, there was a one panel, I think, where he, he gets away from uh, the mineral kryptonite and he starts feeling better and he i think he talks to uh what uh some you know he goes to some scientist or some diamond guy and goes you got to talk to this guy out in the mountains you know some guy who does uh geology or something like that and then he goes i'm gonna go back in time and learn where these minerals came from and it just blew my mind it never dawned on me that he was unaware of where he came from Right. And I mean, I guess, I, I mean, you would be able to answer this better than, than me. Uh, although I don't know, maybe not, cause we're talking about these golden age stories and I know silver age was more your time. Like, I don't know if there were any instances where he ever, it was ever an issue where he was ever like, I don't know where I, right. Like, I, do you think it ever even came up? Um, when I was growing up, he always knew he was from Krypton cause he had super memory. He had perfect total recall. And then they started telling stories that occasionally exposure to kryptonite would make him forget an episode or forget something. But he, you know, in 1964, 1966, seven, he was able to remember life on Krypton. Uh, th there was even some world's finest stories where he was telling Batman about, you know, certain vehicles or, you know, the phantom zone projector. So in the silver age, he always knew he was from Krypton. So this story from the golden age just floored me. And, and like I said, the other thing that's interesting is the story we just spoke about prior to this, the 10th year anniversary. And then this one a year later, right? Bill Finger wrote both of them. So I was impressed how he went back and he goes, you know what? I can tell it differently and still make it a little bit interesting. Yeah, no, that is a great point. Uh, I, 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 I totally agree with that. And, and, you know, going back to what you were saying before about kryptonite, I think it's actually a pretty clever way of launching a story like this, right? The idea that like kryptonite will be the springboard for him, you know, figuring out where he comes from. Again, I like, I like the rocket surviving. I like the rocket being this symbol of where he came from and, and, you know, Pa Kent like pulling the tarp off of it and being like, you're not from around here. Uh, and, and whatever the device is, you know, uh, disc or crystal or whatever, uh, that allows Clark to discover his heritage. I like that a lot, but absent that, I think Kryptonite works um, really well. Uh, one of my patrons, Eric, he, because I, I, you know, I put out for patrons, they can ask a question, and I think actually, Eric, we're gonna, I think we're gonna save this for uh, when Rich and I do our Silver Age episode, because I think this is going to be m more relevant then. But, but Eric had asked, um, is there any? Because as we know, right, like Superman all had all these like weird powers beyond the traditional ones, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, pre-crisis. And uh, Eric asked, are there any that we wish uh, he still had or that they could be reintroduced in some way? And again, in most of these stories that we we went through for this episode, it's not we don't really come across many of those powers. 
I think this is one exception, right, in this episode where he, like, travels back through time to see where he came from. Is that a power that you would want him to still have, or are you glad that it that it was left in the, the pre-crisis? I, I prefer that it was left in pre-crisis, only because we discussed this before when we did that Superman 2000 thing. If you make him omnipotent, what's going to present a challenge to him, Right. I kind of like it where I do want him to be Superman and I want him to be, you know, the leader of the Justice League and the alpha male and the prime. But having the ability to, you know, to fly through time, it's just kind of too, it's excessive. It's, it's, it's too much. Uh, I want some, some limits, but the last thing I'll say, I I just want to get this out because I really do compliment Bill Finger on his ingenuity and his craftsmanship because this one story, he tapped into those two things, kryptonite and then Superman learns he comes from Krypton. Uh, That was never the case in the Silver Age. That was never the case. He always knew. So um, I think, wow, you know, we as the reader knew, but he never knew. So I was impressed with that. The ingenuity and his craftsmanship. Yeah, it, it did accomplish a lot. You're you're totally right. So, uh, you know, the next two things chronologically are the Kirk Allen movie serial and the George Reeves TV show. Now, you and I have been going for just about two hours already, and we still have a few more things to cover. So, uh, you know, you and I, even in this episode, we talked about those two projects, and we did, again, a lot of podcasting about the George Reeves show, and we touched on the Kirk Allen. Is there anything else that you want to say. Otherwise I'm, I'm content to, to jump forward because I feel like we've covered that stuff. I agree with you. Let's, let's jump to uh, Superman 146. Yeah. I mean, again, and I know we, you know, we started with that, right. Were you talking about, uh, you know, that was, that was your first uh, experience with the Superman origin story in the form of, of a reprint. Uh, you know, this to me, I guess my, and I know I talked about the, you know, the shift here where uh, he's rebuilding tenements at the mayor's request, signaling that now he's, you know, uh, more a status uh, symbol of the status quo rather than a champion of the oppressed per se. Uh, Jonathan and Martha, they're Jonathan and Martha now. I guess they had been in the Superboy stories. Um, so this was not the first time that they were called that. But in terms of um, our selections, and, you know, this is the first time that we, we see them uh, at that. Um, I had mentioned before, like the shifts in terms of the like the orphanage. Uh, so, th- so this was, I think, the case where uh, they planned to return. It wasn't like they dropped him off and then they had second thoughts and they came back. Like they, the intention was there. Uh, the, my main takeaway from this was just how much of a Silver Age story this was. Like this has the trappings of the Silver Age. We have Superboy and Crypto most of all. That really jumped out to me. Oh, yeah. Anthony, I will tell you, and I'm, I'm sorry to repeat myself for the audience, but again, this was the first origin I ever read, the first Superman origin I ever read. And it was the primer. It was the blueprint because it tells you everything you need to know. It tells you everything, you know, like how mom, pa, Kent took the blankets from the rocket, and you know, hung them up on the clothesline and you know, use the shotgun and try to, you know, light a fire. It tells you candidly uh, the value of the rocket on a practical level. Like, um, you know, when he would use his x-ray vision, he'd burn through normal glasses. So he was able to take parts of the glass uh, from um, the, the, sh- the windshield of the rocket. 
how his belt was created. Like you said, crypto. Um, it was the blueprint for everything. He had his robots. He had the tunnel underneath his house. Um, now, what was interesting, uh, I think, who wrote this? Was it Otto Binder? I can't remember who wrote this. Yeah, I believe so. But I think he did one thing that was fantastic. Much as I just raved about Superman 61, he didn't use any of that. Otto Binder went back to the the one, the prior version uh, from Superman 53. He repackaged a lot of that. But what I found fascinating, I'll tell you, I could remember seeing covers. Like they showed that one panel when uh, Pa Kent has all these balloons and he's teaching Superboy to fly. That was the cover of a Superboy comic. There were other comics where he used his glasses for the first time and realized, I need something that X-ray vision won't destroy. So they, not only did he go back to the 1948 version, he used actual covers from other stories and just laid them in as one panel. Uh, both, like I, like I said about the, the, the balloons, I think that was Superboy 69. And then there was another story later in time when he realized, I need glasses that, that, that will withstand my X-ray vision or my heat vision. Um, so it, to me, it was, it, was, it, was the, it told you everything you needed. It was the primer and the blueprint. Oh, that, you know, I didn't know that. That's really interesting about, uh, you know, taking those Superboy comics and incorporating them uh, in there. That, well, that actually makes a lot of sense because they're pretty, dis like the balloon thing in particular, that was pretty distinct. And I just kind of chalked it up to, you know, an invention of this story. But, uh, oh, it's inter it's great to get that context. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I'll email you the number, uh, but it was a Superboy comic. So they tapped, you know, they, not only me again, they grabbed some stuff from other issues which shows that the guy did his homework right uh uh but to me that was not a you know i think they called it what's the the story of superman's life i really saw that as a superboy story not a superman story yeah i mean i think that's i think that's accurate um the you know, again, I went on my superboy rant before i don't i don't have too much more to add it was funny to me that like, I thought it was clever to see Martha make him a play suit out of the blankets he came to Earth in, right? Like, I thought that was clever. Like, right, he's, he's playing around with his powers, like, all his clothes are getting destroyed, so she makes him the super play suit. But then it's funny, like, when it's time for him to become Superboy, she's just like, here's your Superboy costume. And I think it's in, in uh, Action 500 where we get a little more nuance to that, where I, I think it's Superboy, like Clark talking, I think it's to Jonathan, and he's like, you know, we've talked about me, like, taking this next step, like, I'm ready to become Superboy. Here, it was just like, here's your costume. Here you go. Here you go. So, uh, yeah. But I, I also think in Action 500, he had an option of insignias. Uh, he, he could have the, the like, the diamond-shaped, or wasn't there a circular uh, uh, S just a, a, I don't remember, a circular insignia. I don't remember that from Action Five Hundred. I have to. I would have to double check that one. Okay. Um, but okay. but yeah, I mean, either, whether it's there or another story, yeah, like the fact that there was at least a little. <laughs> here here it was really just like here's your Superboy costume. Uh, the other thing that, and I know this is a Silver Age thing. I I get it with the robots, but like, see, here's 
here's where the suspension of disbelief hit a wall for me. Like I can, I can fully buy that, you know, the Kents, they know they found this kid in a rocket. They know he comes from somewhere. Right. So the fact that as he's moving forward, he's, he's demonstrating these abilities, he's strong and he could see through walls and he can leap over the house, all that stuff. It's like, okay, they can roll with that. But when Clark is like, Oh, by the way, I made a, I made a robot to help protect my, so, my secret identity. And Pa's like, Oh, okay, that's cool. It's like, what? <laughs> this kid's building robots i mean that that uh again i I don't mean to nitpick but that just that took me out of it it's like that i mean that's not the other stuff isn't normal but it's normal within the context of how you found him in the world that we're in but the robots (laughs) i don't know uh that 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 made me laugh just the uh just like the quick acceptance of like oh yeah and clark made a robot of himself and it's fully functional Anthony, we are going to unpack this in the Silver Age because because you've just you've just cracked the surface of this this robot stuff. It will amaze you when I tell you some of the stories, I, and I don't want to get into it now. But um, again, I was so impressed. Quite frankly, when you look at the ten year anniversary, his return to Krypton, the Bill Finger, where he learned he was from Krypton. And then you look at this story. This one leapfrogs over the prior one and really, really just kind of builds on the 10-year anniversary, but then throws in, repackages some stuff about how he learned to use his powers a little bit. Yes. This one also, finally, I, I have to give them credit because... We start to get there's a I mean yes there's emotion when the Kents die in the in the ver- in the previous tellings but here we also have this idea uh, and, I, and it might just be I think I think it's just one panel in this story where and I think it's when Clark's at college but he, he wants to play football and he knows that he can't oh, right yes because he has to appear yes. meek and and mild and timid and he's just, sitting on the uh, on the, the bleachers yeah, and he's, he's got like, this yep. goofy little college hat yeah. I like yeah. that. I appreciated that because I, again, that taps into, oh. you know, one of the aspects of the character I like the most where it's like there's this, you know, there's this separation and there's this longing to fit in and, and be quote unquote normal and he's not. And I, I like that aspect of it. And I, I, I should have told you this. I forgot about this. But um, at the very end of this story in, uh, in 1961, they have that scene where all the people in Smallville stand and they say, goodbye, Superboy. We'll, we'll never forget you or something like that. And then he comes back with this like uh, cake that's like three stories tall. But that came from another story that was about seven or eight years earlier in time. There was some story like 1955 or something, uh, Superboy's last day in Smallville. And his parents had died and he's got like two suitcases and he's flying away. And then he sees the entire uh, town's population all standing in like a stencil going, goodbye, Superboy. And then he comes back with a giant cake. But that was yet another story that they repackaged uh, for this for this 1961 story. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the future on the podcast, pro- I don't think this year, because uh, I'm planned pretty far ahead, but uh, I, I, I will... There will be a Superboy deep dive, and I'm willing to keep an open mind. And you know, it's funny because I'm going to argue against myself here for a little bit. You know, the Smallville TV show was incredibly formative for me. I love the Smallville sequence in Superman the movie. I mean, that 
you know, that aspect of the character, the life on the farm, right, is, is you know, uh, iconic to me. I mean, it's such an indelible part of the, the way I see the character. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, so many of the trappings of Smallville, the town, like, like uh, Lana and Pete and, you know, more time with the Kents, that all comes out of the Superboy comics, right? Yes, yes, yeah. So I think yeah. maybe I need to, even though I don't really like the idea of Superboy as a threshold matter, I think I do have to recognize and appreciate that those Superboy stories added a lot of the elements to the character that I like. I mean, even just the Kents, it's like in most of these stories, again, we spend very little time with them, but it's like they're there in the Superboy stories. And I can't help but think that maybe that at least in part informed, you know, keeping the Kents around in the post-crisis version. Possibly. Anthony, I... I compliment you. I didn't think about that till you just said it a minute ago, right? When you look at the stories of Superman, basically up, up, up through, what, 1950? Yeah, all we see is Paul Kent on the deathbed, you know, and Clark standing there in that blue suit. Yeah, the, the Kent's as parents and as uh, nurturing him and protecting him and helping him and, and, you know, on so many levels, they were part of the Superboy uh, mythos and Superboy stories. That's a, that's an excellent point. I didn't think about that. See, that's the lawyer in me. I argue against myself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I, and I, I really, in these episodes, it's like, I want to try to keep an open mind. It's not, this isn't so much about me coming in and being like, this is what I like. And it's the only way to look at the character. I'm, I'm, curious to see you know other takes and and see what works so um so yeah i mean superman 146 i know that's a big one for you i mean i think you know for myself as well like that really that stood out to me in going through this in part because i know how much it means to you but even just in the context of these other stories it really stands out as like a tent pole i think too because it comes after all these golden age variations and before we get like deeper into the silver age and the bronze age. And I think it really, uh, yeah, it really is maybe a little bit of a bridge and, and definitely a tent pole. Um, when we look at all of these origin stories. So yeah, Superman 146, uh, from, from 1961, that's a big one. And that's, um, where did I read that? It's funny. So I have like a whole stack. I have a stack of my, uh, Superman, it's I cobble this together, right? So I have my iPad with the DC app, and I have a couple of the hardcovers, the uh, the super the seventy five year and the eighty year anniversary editions. I have my Superman through the decade trades, Superman in the forties, fifties, sixties. I have okay. the novel that I got on Amazon. I have uh, the Action five hundred uh, that I got from eBay. So like all these various things. Uh, I forget exactly which uh, where I read 146, but oh, I think I read it in this like Superman in the 60s trade. I think you probably did, and I think in Superman in the 50s they had his last day in Smallville, Superman's last or Superboy's last day in Smallville. I think that was reprinted in the 50s. Yeah, those are good trades. I'm glad I tracked them down, and I know I mentioned that on another episode. I'm glad I tracked those down because they're they're helpful, and the introductions are cool. Like Mark Wade wrote the one for Superman in the 60s, and there's some historical uh, tidbits, you know, in between issues. Um, so they're they're a helpful guide. 1973, we get the Amazing World of Small of Superman, the Metropolis edition. 
Um, I, I don't know if you know the background on this. I think it was a tie-in to like a ta- like the celebrate the Metropolis Illinois cele- celebration. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, I vaguely heard that. Uh, candidly, this was, I think, one of the rare times that Carmine Infantino did work in a Superman story. This is probably, you know, the creative power on this between Infantino, Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson. It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. But uh, I'm not trying to be a jerk. It really doesn't tell us we haven't learned anything new that we haven't learned in the prior uh, eight or nine. It's beautifully presented, um, but there's no new facets of information. Uh, This is the one that... How in God's name did Jonathan get that rocket on the back of his pickup? (laughs) So I made two notes and one was about the rocket. And I think that the reason for this, I believe I came across this, was that there was like a rocket prop like in the metropolis town. For anyone who's, I I think, I assume people know this, but there's there's literally a town in the real world called Metropolis in Illinois. And they have this big Superman celebration every year. And so this comic was like a sort of like a tie into that. And I think they had a rocket prop. And so in, in this telling of the origin, oh. in a departure from the previous one, the rocket doesn't disintegrate, like they keep it. And I think that was why. I didn't know that. Interesting. And then the other, the one other thing was, uh, well, actually two other things real quick. Uh, Laura, it, it, the, I, the, the Laura's weight in the rocket comes up, but in this case, she's the one who brings it up. She's like, I could get in the rocket with him, but I don't know what my weight will do to it. Just, just uh, following up on that thread. And then this is so minor, but it's interesting to me. Uh, there's a mention on Krypton. I don't know if it's Jorel saying it or or one of the other scientists, but um, about returning to our abandoned space program, because that's an in, that's a funny wrinkle in this, where you know, like Jorel's whole thing is like we need to build rockets to leave this planet, but it's like if there's, but at the same time. They tell us over and over and over and over how advanced Krypton is. It's like, if they're so advanced, why don't they have any friggin' rockets? Right, right. No, uh, I, I always, I do remember that little phraseology, like our abandoned. Uh, and I, I, now that you say that aloud, uh, I'm using that as, okay, that's probably a good explanation why poor Jarrell had to do some test rockets and stuff like that. Um. But it also speaks to, it gave John Byrne the ability to tap into that xenophobic, like, hey, we're not going to leave this planet. It's our planet. We're, we're not going to mingle with others. Uh, and I think that's a that, great, I, and again, like, you know, in the next episode, we'll really, I'm, I'm looking forward to rereading all that stuff now with this in my head because it's like, yeah, it's like, why, why don't they have rockets? I mean, at least this, at least this story accounted for, like, they abandoned, for whatever reason, right, they abandoned their space program. It's like, okay, there was a... It's not an inability. It was a choice. But I think, you know, kind of in those post-crisis stories, taking it to the next level, and it's like, well, there's this xenophobia, there's this isolationism. It's like, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Like, why this was such a challenge to get even one infant off the planet. And I think to that point, Anthony, wasn't the story when Monel first came to Krypton, I think Jorel was like, hey, hide that rocket, you know, uh, because I think it did speak to the, uh, the fear of outsiders and the xenophobia. Um, and I, I don't know where that came from, but I vaguely remembered. I think that might've been the world of Krypton. Like when Monel appeared on Krypton, kind of flew his rocket in and just happened to land in jor backyard. Right, right. 
Uh, and then, I mean, I guess, so that's 1973. Uh, you know, the next stop on our journey here, 1978, is Superman the movie. Um, now, that movie will be its own episode at some point. Uh, but at least as far as the origin goes, real quick, because we're, we're two hours and 15 minutes here. This is, this is quite the epic. Honestly, though, I got to tell you, man, I've had so much fun doing this. Uh, and I, I, I hope you I have. echo that. I, I echo that, Anthony. I echo that. Uh, but let and, me, and yeah. just like, just like you, I had to chronologically list <laughs> stuff because after a while it all became a blur. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, so, you know, with Superman, the movie, I, I feel like the, the Krypton uh, uh, is a very, you know, this, the ice aesthetic, you know, became iconic and carried through to Smallville and, and the Supergirl TV show and, and various other incarnations. Uh, so it was a very distinct, uh, you know, aesthetic, um, I love, you know, the the time in Smallville there. It's only a few minutes, but I think it really hits on. Um, and I guess I, I appreciate it even more after, it's <laughs> a sound like a, like a, I don't know, a, a knock on the comics. But, you know, with the exception of, you know, like that panel that I just mentioned of, of Clark wanting to play football, you know, there's not, you don't get a ton of that, you know, in these pre-crisis stories. So I appreciate in the movie, even though it is only like a, you know, a 10 or 15 minute sequence on Smallville, but, you know, I think you do get a good sense of what Clark's going through. And I've, I've mentioned this on various podcasts, but you know, that scene of Clark at Jonathan's grave with this, this notion of like all these powers and I, I couldn't save him. So powerful. And, and that, that speaks to what I was talking about before when, how do I feel about the parents being dead versus alive? Like I think in the 1973 issue, Clark is like laying on, on the bed over his father's body and he's just sobbing. And it really drives home the fact that for all his powers, he couldn't save the two people he loved the most in the world. So I found that very, very powerful uh, on just an emotional level. Uh, sorry. I, uh, yeah, that's my take on that. Yeah, yeah. please don't apologize. You don't have to apologize. Uh, well, no, I, I when I do spontaneous stuff, and uh, uh, I, I'm afraid I'm taking us down a rabbit hole. No, not at all. I and so I complimented it. The thing that has always, always bugged me about Superman the movie is the 15 years that Clark spends in the fortress. You know, getting trained by Jor El. I just. I mean, it works in the sense that it, it, the fact that he's gone for so long and I mean, literally it's a different actor when he comes out, it's like, okay, it helps account for why people wouldn't, wouldn't uh, recognize him necessarily. And I guess, I don't know, I'm kind of, this, this really is spontaneous. I hadn't given this a ton of thought, but I, I mean, I guess I appreciate that. All right, let me work this out. I'll work this out in real time. I, I guess in the pre-crisis stories that we've read, um, you know, you, you do get this notion of the Kents teaching him that he needs to do something good with his powers. Um, but you don't necessarily get a ton of time with that or it's not f like fully fleshed out. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, in some cases it's just this deathbed, you know, motivation of like, Hey, you know, you should go be a superhero. So I guess I appreciate the idea that like, he's learning about his powers. He's really being instructed. The fact that they were trying to account for, it's like what forms him as Superman I appreciate that, but I just feel like it it takes something away from the character that he's just, you know, programmed is too strong of a word, but that's what it feels like to me when he goes into that fortress and we just see 
Jor-El's floating uh, uh, head and like everything yeah. flying around. Now, I, I never cared for that. I never cared for that because it reinforced the fact that Krypton was a cold, sterile world, right? And here, half his life is just being in this, uh, you know, sequestered in this thing with no human contact and just having all the knowledge of the universe imbued into him. I liked it much more, much more when candidly he died after, or I'm sorry, after his parents died, he went from high school to Metropolis University, and then he got the job with the newspaper. I never cared for that 15-year gap. In some ways, the Henry Cavill version I liked a little bit more, where, or, or the Mark Wade version where he traveled the world and, you know, go to Africa or go to different, you know, go up to the Pacific Northwest where the logging industry was or go on a ship. I liked it where he had that human interaction as he was learning who he was. So I never cared for that, that ice palace uh, uh, in the Donner, in the Donner movie. Uh, I also, the other thing I'm, I'm leaping real fast. I didn't like how they portrayed the Kryptonian villains in that, you know, when Superman takes the insignia off his, his, uh, uh, I, I, there was things that, like you said, talk about suspension of disbelief. It just didn't work. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. Uh, and, yeah. and Ken and I did a whole episode on Superman two and the different cuts. We talked about that for anyone who hasn't listened. I encourage you to check it out. We, we had a lot of fun with that, but yeah, that was really out there. Um, you know, if we stick to the true, you know, Richard Donner version, uh, that never happened. That was only in the Lester cut. Uh, but you know, it's, <laughs> wouldn't it be hilarious if, uh, cause like when we talk about this 15 year, you know, uh, independent study with Jor-El, right? It's like, it's not that far. It's not the same, but it's not that far removed from the radio show and him coming out fully formed. Wouldn't it be hilarious if Richard Donner was like, you know, I was a big fan of that radio show. I thought it was such a brilliant choice when he just comes out of that rocket and he's super. (laughs) It has it has that feel to it. So it's like, yeah, I'm with you a thousand percent, you know, and I've talked about this in other episodes, but it's like exactly what you said, whether it's Clark, you know, traveling the world as a report, I think Birthright got it the best because not only is he traveling the world, but he's working as a reporter. Um, Mm. Whereas I love Man of Steel, of course, but in that he's really just, he's just traveling, right? There's not that journalism aspect. That's one thing that really did get as much as I'm a defender of Snyder, that got shortchanged, especially in Man of Steel. You get more of it in Batman v Superman where he's investigating Batman. Um, and that kind of, I know we haven't touched on it a ton. We have a little bit. Um, but again, as part of the origin story, you know, him becoming a reporter, getting the job. I mean, in pretty much all of these incarnations, it really is just, it's a cover. It's not something that he necessarily has a background in. That's not my favorite version of the story. I like where journalism actually means something to him. And I think... I get in the 30s and like I get in 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 older times it did make more sense like he needed to be in a place where he would get information quickly. I I appreciate that in Birthright and other stories. It's like that's that doesn't really track anymore. It's like he doesn't need to work at a newspaper, you know, in order to figure out what's going on. So the idea that journalism means something, I'm glad that that has gotten fleshed out more. In all of these stories it really is just like it's a convenience for him. It's a means to an end. Yeah. Now, interestingly, in the 1942 novel, 
I keep hitting the we, showcase behind me. So sorry, listeners. <laughs> uh, in the 1942 novel, that one day when he gets in trouble in school, when his x-ray vision manifests itself, and what happened is some girl was supposed to get a blue ribbon for some project or some homework, and they couldn't find the blue ribbon. And his x-rays kind of goes, no, it's, it's stuck behind the drawer. So everyone thinks that he rummaged through the desk, but he also got an award and it spoke about he loved reading. He loved reading in all forms. And I guess he, he read certain books and he wrote a book report. So I found that fascinating because that was kind of the genesis or the birth for, he didn't just go to the newspaper to have access to information. And that's in today's time, that's a quaint notion, right? But he just loved reading and writing. So I, I found that uh, a tie into that 1942 novel. That's again ahead of its time. Yeah. Ahead of yeah. its time. We got to give credit to that. We might do, maybe we'll do an episode like after I fully read it and I lend it to you and we, you know, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do an episode on that because I think there's probably more um, to talk about. You know, the other thing and this too is really its own discussion. And I'm actually planning, I think, like a multi episode look at Clark Kent in the future because I, I've, I think there's a lot to explore there. But, um, you know, when Ken and I did our Superman 2 episode, and that's, of course, the movie where he gives up his powers to be with Lois and instantly regrets it and can't, can't function as Clark, gets, beat, gets beaten up immediately. <laughs> and, I, and I said this, we talked about this a lot in that episode. I, you know, don't like the idea that Clark is really just a disguise. And I think storytelling sensibilities aside, I think the other major issue that I've had, like really connecting with the pre-crisis stories is that whole notion that, uh, you know, Superman is really who he is and he puts on the glasses like just to blend in. But one of my, uh, one of my audience members actually uh, wrote this in response to that episode and it was a great point and it's something that if you had asked me, maybe I would have said, oh yeah, that, I, I agree with that. But I, I don't know that I really fully thought about it. But I, to, the, to this uh, viewer's uh, point, this idea, and you see this in the pre-crisis stories, that he grows up with the powers. Like, he always has the powers, and it's something that he has to hide as opposed to the powers that emerge later. Um, and I think that might, in part, inform uh, sort of that that division between Clark and Superman. That's something that I'll explore more down the line, but it was an interesting idea, and I think that that might help account for why, you know, the, the Clark Kent identity is, is depicted the way that it is. It's like if he's always had the powers, like he's always been Superman in a way, as opposed to spending at least part of his childhood more or less as a normal kid and then these powers emerging and then that's the part of himself that is kind of hidden and then you have the dual identity, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I, I need to process that a little bit, uh, but that does make sense and I need to read more about it, but the post-crisis stuff where... I think it was burned. He wants to play football with the other kids. You know, he, he, he wants to excel. Uh, but then his father's concerned that, look, you've got so much more power. You're not in the same league. You're no pun intended. You're not, you know, you can't compete with them. I need to, I need to explore that, but it does help because let's say before any of his powers manifest, he's just a normal kid. Right? So as the powers, as, they manifest and he matures 
and he gains his power, then you then you can start saying, hey, I need to go in two different directions. I've got to have two identities. Yeah, I really think there's something to that. So thank you uh, to, to that uh, was a listener or, or viewer. Uh, so I, I think that brings us to 1979's, you know, Action Comics 500. Uh, 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 <laughs> you're laughing. What did you, uh, did you, you didn't, you did not reread this, right? I, I I'm going to be candid. I have it. I dug it out of one of my boxes, but I was so OD'd on all the others. And then I, I will tell you in, in fairness to, uh, was it Marty Pasco who wrote it? I think. Yep. And Kurt Swan, right on the art, Kurt Swan. And I think Dave Hunt, I don't like Dave Hunt's, uh, uh, inks. But I was so OD'd on all the others. But in to give them credit, this really was the life story because it was not just it was not just a repeat of 146. You had Supergirl coming to Earth. You had like Lori Lamaris. You had um, Crypto. It, that was they let that stuff breathe a little bit more. But there was such a weird backstory with Luther trying to do the clone. I mean, it was like where are you guys really going with? It? I, I I think they did something like well, we're going to have you walk through this museum. You'll remember all this stuff. So your clone will have the same memories. Uh, it just, to me, doesn't hold up well. Uh, sorry. You know, <laughs> I mean, please, Rich, please, you must stop apologizing. It's it's fine. Uh, I, I don't disagree with that, to be honest. I like, I'm glad I tracked this down. I was like 15 bucks on eBay. I was like, oh, I want to have it. And again, it wasn't available elsewhere. And so uh, it, it was it was fun to read. Um you know, as far as one of these, uh, you know, a Bronze Age, you know, representation of, of the origin story. Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily feel like it added that much more to our or to our Silver Age, our main Silver Age story. Uh, again, you do get, you do see Supergirl in here. So there was that. And there is a part where Superman reflects on his loves, you know, with, with Lana and Lo- and Lori and, and Lori Lois. Lamaris. Yeah. You know, but yeah, the main, the, the, the plot device of this episode, like you, like you alluded to is like, there's the, there's the Superman pavilion at the world's fair. And yeah, Superman is reliving his life. Like he uses the mind ray probe or whatever, but those it's all a plot by Lex to sort of download those memories into a clone clone. who he controls. And then uh, Superman and the clone fight and Superman is able to expose the clone to gold kryptonite permanently removing his powers. Um, And then I guess they just apprehend the clone. I always wondered like, uh, I, I I have too. What happened to the clone? What happened to the clone? Like, there's. I mean, you know, I, not that I would necessarily want DC to do their own version of the Spider-Man clone saga, uh, but it's like, whatever happened to that clone? Uh, and we do uh, get another. We get a robot appearance in here as well. Uh, Clark yeah. robot to help uh, you know preserve his secret identity. Actually, actually, I think that clone was taken to a mountain cabin and told <laughs> he had to stay there. Listen, for anyone who, who was uh, tuned into our Adventures of Superman episodes, uh, that's a fantastic callback. I love it, Rich. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, like, this was a solid story. I, I mean, again, I didn't feel like it necessarily, I mean, it it recounted a lot of the beats that we had already had. I mean, I, I do think, yeah, the Supergirl um, inclusion, uh, you know, added, added another layer to it. Um, but, uh yeah, I mean it was solid. I'm glad I tracked it down. It's not. I don't look at it as a as one of those tentpole origin stories. I agree. It was. Yeah. How shall I say it? A 500th issue. Okay, I salute them. And and also to go. Hey, it's issue number 500. We're going to basically give. It's a nice jumping on point. You know, the same way I loved uh, that book I bought when I was like uh, almost nine. 
for someone else who might have been 10 or 11 years old in 1979, this was probably a perfect uh, entry point because it told you everything you need to know. Uh, but I just don't think it added anything new at all. It just seemed like a longer version, a longer version of 146. And it was confusing with the whole clone thing and Luther and stuff like that. I, you know, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I for myself too, I think reading this in a vacuum, I think it's a great, like this really, I mean, you know what, to be honest, I, again, I know you're partial and I guess myself too, to an extent to, you know, Superman 146, but I feel like if I were to say to someone, like, you got to read one, if someone was like, I want to read one pre-crisis Superman origin story, I would probably, this is pretty thorough. This really, yep. you know, gives you everything. Uh, so it's helpful yep. in that sense. But when you've read a dozen others <laughs> leading up to it, it's like, all right. <laughs> now, the interesting thing, one thing I found interesting is, I think Al Plastino did the artwork in 146. Kurt Swan did it here. But he almost did certain panels, like with the blankets and uh, the pitchfork and the fire, were a perfect copy of 146. Oh, interesting. Gotcha. Um, all right. So uh, I guess also that year in 1979, we had the World of Krypton miniseries by Paul Kupperberg. You mentioned this before. It's a three-issue miniseries all about Jor-El's life. Uh, I will confess, I didn't read the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of OD'd a little bit as well. And I... Uh, I guess I realized at a certain point this was really Jor-El's story, which is not not to discount it, um, but I, I I didn't fully delve into it. I, I, I flipped through it um, or scrolled through it on the DC app, rather. Um, again, I know you had touched on it before. Is there anything else that, um, that, that you wanted to mention about the world of Krypton? Uh, I'll say this. Uh, I do have all three issues. I bought them when they came out. Uh, three things I'll say. One thing, uh, this came out almost the exact same time as the untold, untold legend of the Batman, which was another three part. John Byrne did the initial artwork where they, they got everything about the story of Batman, you know, his father being Batman and stuff like this for, uh, uh some charity event and just, they did everything with Batman. This was, this, I would have called this the world of Jor-El because it really wasn't as much the world of Krypton. It was Jor-El's history and even his father was in it, right? And his, his brothers. And it gave stuff about the Phantom Zone. Um, but I think really the origin was only on the last page of the third issue where they, you know, they rocket Kal-El off, off the planet. I mean, it's okay if you want to really be a completist with Kryptonian stories. It's good. It explains the whole culture. The thing I didn't like is this is one of those stories. I think there's one two-page spread in there where Kal-El, Superman, is at his parents' wedding. You know, he's like, he's like either the best man or one of the ushers, you know. So... Really? You know, I mean, th that's when it starts getting on my nerves. Like, how yeah, how easy is time travel, you know? Uh, um, sorry about that. You know, it just drives me nuts. The, 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 yeah. How many times has Superman gone back to crypto? No, it's true. I, you know, you know, it's funny. So I didn't ask Mark Wade this, but this actually would have been a good follow-up question, right? Because he loves the Silver Age right? Has well, well documented. He wrote the introduction to Superman in the sixties. We know he loves the silver age. He's not a fan of the Kents being alive. He, he likes more of that 
you know, uh, Clark experiencing that loneliness, and, and he also doesn't like when the Kents are used, I guess, kind of as a crutch, like if they're always there as advisors for him, does it take away from from Clark himself a little bit? But it's like, I wonder how he feels about those Krypton stories from the Silver Age, where it's like he's always like he's always <laughs> going back or visiting in some way. It's like, I wonder if he feels that that takes away, uh, you know, a little bit on, on that side of it, too. I agree with you. I think um, it's I, I like him knowing where he comes from, and I think a return there when used sparingly can be effective, but, uh, you know, I think they probably went a little too far <laughs> during Agreed. that time. Agreed. It dilutes, it dilutes the value. I mean, and that, that, that annoyed me when I saw, you know, Superman in his Superman costume at his parents' wedding that, that just like, really, you know, and isn't Krypton supposed to be like 10 times the size of earth? How can Superman always fall into his parents' backyard? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't he be on the other side of the world? Wouldn't he be in their version of Japan or something like that? Yeah. And then finally, uh, in the mid eighties, I think this was, wasn't this technically post-crisis? I, I, 1986, right? Yeah. You're well, we got two, two to cover. You got secret years and then that secret origin by, uh, um, Roy Thomas, I want to touch on that. So, secret secret years was a Frank Miller right? He wrote or drew yeah. it? Uh, he drew it. He only drew the covers. Oh, he only, only drew the covers. covers. Kurt Swan and Kurt Shingledecker, uh, who were superb Silver Age artists, were kind of called back. This was after Kurt Swan was pushed off in favor of Byrne uh, being the writer and artist. I'll tell you, I have I think two of the four parts. They're beautiful Frank Miller covers. Um, the two things I'll say, they are really a rehash of other Superman stories. Like, uh, basically the secret years are his college years, his experience at Metropolis university. Uh, they rehash a lot of the Lori Lamaris stuff, but they add certain contemporary things like where one of his roommates, uh, uh, DUI has a bad car accident and he shatters his legs and then there's another another thing with another roommate where the kid's really, really, really insecure. And he writes his parents about all these great times he has with Clark Kent. Clark's his best friend. Parents come to the university. And Clark goes, what are you talking about? We're not friends, you know? And it, it, it they just, it was filler. It was filler in my mind. They rehashed old stories and tried to make them contemporary. But I think uh, over time, it, from an artwork and from a content perspective, it doesn't hold up well. Gotcha. Okay. No, thank you for that summation. That's one of the things that uh, I, I did not have access to. I don't. I didn't own the issues. It wasn't collected, as far as I could tell. It's not available digitally. Uh, I, I. They probably would have been affordable to track down on eBay, but I, I, didn't, I didn't go that far. So that was one that I did not read. So I, I appreciate uh, your your encapsulation of that. And, and then the final piece, uh, which I guess this is technically, right, uh, post-crisis, but uh, Secret Origin, where we get the the origin story of uh, the Golden Age Superman, which, right, at that point, he had been repositioned, uh, you know, once in the advent of the Silver Age, had been repositioned as the Earth 2 Superman. So in Secret Origin, number one, 1986, we get the origin story of uh, the Golden Age slash Earth 2 Superman and tracks very closely to to those Golden Age stories. I it yep. Like very much so. I mean, I didn't feel like it really gave us much new or different. Do you feel otherwise? No, I think it, uh, uh, 
kudos to Roy Thomas because he assembled, like he took the stuff from the 1939 newspaper at the beginning uh, where Jor-El was superpowered. He's running at super speed and he's leaping and he's flying. So he, he was superpowered on Krypton. Uh, Wayne Boring is an artist. I can never, at certain times I think he's good. Certain times I think he's not good. It depends on the anchor. But I think Ordway really enhanced uh, the artwork. I really do. The only thing I wanted to tell you, did, did you read this? Uh, the, I did. This? Okay. Did you notice at the very end, after uh, Superman rescues Lois from, uh, from Butch and all this stuff, and he's flying her around, there's one scene where he, like, grabs her wrist and he, he towards the very end, and he kind of goes, I'd advise you not to tell anyone about this story. And I immediately flashed to that famous cabin on the mountain because she's like, you know, <laughs> taking it back. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> yeah. Once again, I think it, yeah, it uh, aligns with the George Reeves uh, season one uh, Superman. Yeah. The only other thing that this was very small, but there was a line. I think it was narration. I don't think it was a character saying it, but I could be wrong. But there was some line in in that Secret Origin story about, uh, like, in time he would fight more colorful villains or some. Like it alluded to, um, I guess, like it was an in story allusion to uh, the the fact that the scope of his threats would change in time, just as they had historically in the comics, right? Like initially, yes, it's the wife beater and the corrupt politician and all that. But obviously, you know, we get more sci-fi influences and, and you know, costumes, villains and all that stuff and monsters. I mean, and, you know, you name it. Um, so there was that reference to, you know, there's a basically yes. like there's a, a wider world of threats that he's yet to face, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was fun. I mean, again, I, I, you know, it was, it was cool to read and I, I guess it was a nice little uh, farewell really, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, post-crisis once that, that whole, uh, you know, iteration of the DC universe was, was done, uh, at least for the time, uh, you know, just to kind of have this, this, uh, again, a very faithful, a very faithful and thorough retelling of the golden age Superman. So it's, it's cool. That's on the DC app. That's where I read it. So if anyone's curious, they can, they can check it out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a quality. It, it, it's a nice done in one. It puts a bow on it. And if, if you need to, uh, like for one of my nephews, if I wanted to distinguish today's Superman or even the Superman from Wade or Byrne, I wanted to distinguish them from say the 1940s version. I'd give them that secret origins because I think the artwork's good. It's a nice done in one, but it harkens back to the 1940 rendition. Yes. Well, my friend, we've been talking for, uh, this is officially the longest episode. This is two hours and 41 minutes uh, and counting. But I, I you know, I, I really, I can't thank you enough for, you know, coming on this flight. It's that we will call it a ride. We'll call it a flight. Coming on this flight with me and, uh, you know, revisiting all of these stories. It was great to get your insight, um, especially have, as someone who grew up reading, you know, at least some of these stories, you know, it was great to get your perspective and, uh, you know, for myself, like this was, like I said, with the exception of action one, maybe Superman one, but I don't think I had ever read that. I mean, almost all of this was new. And so it was, it was really fascinating to see how the origin, how it started, how it built. And I think it will, I think it really will make me appreciate the post-crisis ones that I'm going to visit in the next episode even more, you know, now that I have a better sense of, of where it came from. 
Is there anything that you want to say before we sign off? I want to learn who the hell that passing motorist was. <laughs> That's a, yeah, you know, it's funny because again, you know, with Action 1000, you know, they did that story following up with Butch with the green car, but it's like, that would have been an interesting story too. Like, who is this motorist? I mean, uh, when you, if I may, real fast, when you look at what happened with Alan Scott and that one panel with the guy on the train with him and how they used that to go in an entirely different direction, uh, I wondered if they wanted to, because if you look at that motorist, right, I wonder if it was like Dr. Occult or something like that, because he's got the trench coat on, he's got the fedora hat. But the the fact that kind of drove me nuts is for like, of the first 12 issues, in four of them, he's found by a passing motorist. Uh, I do like it infinitely better with the Kents, I think. Emotionally, that's much better to have the Kents find, you know, the baby and take it to the orphanage. I think that's a better way to go. As do I. And, and, I, and I guess, you know, as we see the, the origin evolve, like we said, you know, just to kind of really sum up here, you definitely see the changing times influence the comics, uh, you know, in the ways that we discuss. And I, and I guess, too, you know, you know, whether it's an expectation on the part of the readers or maybe the creators have more of a desire, but, you know, you see more of an effort to account for, you know, why, right? Like in the, in action one, it's just like, okay, like, again, most of the time is spent explaining his powers. Um, and, and maybe for an audience of kids in 1938, that was really all that you need. But as you move forward, it's like, yeah, you want to explain, well, you know, how, like, he just grew up in an orphanage. It's like, no, well, there were actually these people here. And, you know, you know, everything kind of starts to build. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I know I poked fun, right, at, at, you know, various elements here, but I really do appreciate all of the work that, you know, these creators put in over all of these decades. And, you know, each, each iteration of the origin story, you know, we get, you know, we, we get another layer here. And most of it, you know, it's funny, um, you know, I'd say, I guess most of it ends up sticking as we move forward. Like I know this, a lot of the Silver Age stuff, like, like crypto and Supergirl, like that'll go away, but then parts of it come back. Um, but you know, a lot of it really does, it does seem to feel like it has this, this, uh, this moment, like there's some building there, like there's layering here. We have the foundation in those initial couple pages and, and, and then it builds from there. Yep. Yep. So Rich, Thank you. You'll be back. You'll be back in a few episodes to talk Silver Age. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. Thank you for doing this. Thank you to everyone who listened or watched. I know this was this was an epic episode, but I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, I, 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 I'm real proud of it. I'm very proud of this episode. I think as far as breakdowns of the origin stories, um, you know, not, not not to pat ourselves on the back, but I feel like I feel like we covered a lot in in a meaningful way. I'm, I'm really proud of this episode. I echo that. And listen, I'm thrilled with the knowledge I gained, even if we had not dissected it and every, just reading it. Uh, this was not a casual read. I read with a purpose. So I got a lot more out of it. So this was, this was time well spent. Right on. Well, thank you, Rich. Thank you to our audience. Uh, make sure that you come back here in uh, two weeks. My buddy Jeremy and I, we're going to be talking about the post-crisis Superman origin story. So we have a lot more to cover and until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Schiegel, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to listen to My Comic Shop History, available on most major podcast platforms. Sign up for exclusive additional content, 
including the Digging for Kryptonite companion podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.